How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 74 of X-Lapsed, and it uh, feels like it's been a while since I've done one of these. Uh, we're currently after Thanksgiving, and I am one aching unit. Um, it's been a very, very busy and hectic week. Uh, to start, I, uh, I decided to, I'd say run a 5K, but I ran some of it and I jogged a lot of it as well. But I did that on Thanksgiving morning uh, as a way to like, counterbalance the uh, massive amounts of uh, carbohydrates I was going to be taking in throughout the rest of the weekend. And uh, my feet were hurt. My feet were hurting before I did the 5K. You know, I've... I don't know what it is. My feet are just sore most of the time. And, uh, boy, doing a 5K did not help. And then uh, being on my feet for the, you know, subsequent... 15, 16 hours taking care of all the cooking and the entertaining really did a number on me here. I was walking on my tippy toes the past couple days, and uh, which really doesn't help my calves any. My calves are now killing me. And uh, then uh, to add insult to injury, I had a I had a one-on-one bout with uh, my front door. My front door. Uh, I got split open, <laughs> walking into my front door. Uh, I don't know why I'm sharing this information. I guess just to uh, give you the full uh, crispiness. I guess um, we've got these little uh, dia, these like uh, you know dias. They're they're Christmas lights, the Christmas decorations. And uh, our front yard here has like desert landscaping, but we have a little riverbed element to it, so it's a uh, Really facilitates nice little Christmas scenes with the with the decorations and the lights and stuff. So we have these deer, and we make them look like they're by the little stream, you know. One of them fell over. It falls over every damn year because it's a bigger one, and uh, the ground out here in Arizona is very very hard. So it's hard to get a stake into the ground. So I actually went out and bought new stakes, like better stakes, better better stakes than what come with the actual, you know, the little gimmicks. So, it fell over. I go to go outside, have my little mallet. I open the door and I realize, oh, I forgot my stakes. I turn around and bang, right in the corner of the door. I get I get right in the middle of my forehead, splits me open. I, I You could offer me any amount of money to replicate that and I wouldn't be able to do it. It's so ridiculous and it's kind of embarrassing. But, uh, so yeah, I spent... A few hours, kind of dazed, kind of dizzy, very uncomfortable, and uh, wearing a Band-Aid on my head, which made me, uh, in the words of my wife, look like a four-year-old who fell off the jungle gym. So that's been my holiday weekend. Uh, how was yours? Leave, leave me comments below. But anyway, 
Let's get into the reason why we are here today. We are here to bring the Dawn of X books into the double digits. And we're going to do that with Marauders number 10. Now, this is the first book to come back after the the COVID lapse. You know, the uh, the span of time here, the two, about a two-month span of time where the comics industry was just kind of on pause. So Marauders is what kicks off the Dawn of X post-COVID launch here. So Marauders number 10 had a June 2020 cover date, though it probably should have had a July cover date. Stories called Leave None to Tell the Tale, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors, Edgar Delgado, letters, VCs, Corey Petit, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski, cover price, $3.99, and this one went on sale May 27th of 2020. And we open at Port Genosha on Krakoa. Port Genosha on Krakoa, all right. I'm going to come clean here. Even after doing this show for several months at this point, uh, and having to actually type the word Krakoa hundreds, if not thousands of times at this point, I swear, like, one out of every five or six times, I still accidentally type Genosha. (laughs) So I I just hope that I haven't actually said Genosha instead of Krakoa a bunch of times on the air, but... I wouldn't bet a solitary dime that I haven't. Um, So all this to say, having a Port Genosha on Krakoa is probably not going to help me with my confusion. But as ever, we will endeavor to do our best. Anyway, here sits the first distillery of Krakoa. Now Forge is working here with our old friend from the Mutant Liberation Front, Tempo. Now you see, she has a power of chronokinesis, and with that, she can instantly make whiskey age, or anything age, but in this case, whiskey. Unfortunately for her, she really isn't a fan of whiskey. Sebastian Shaw, however, can suck him down like nobody's business, which is exactly what he's doing right now. And so we get a page of them talking about whiskey, none of which Tempo cares in the slightest about. The conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Storm, who's here to talk to Forge. She pulls him off to the side to discuss how the Russians are using his power-dampening weapons. We all know that they have this, they have the pistols, they got the armor, all this incredible stuff here. To which Forge, he ain't buying it. He's very incredulous because he destroyed all of his old files. Storm's like, hey, come on, think a little bit harder. Is there any way this could be your stuff? And unfortunately for him, he recalls that he had uh, this one assistant named Daniels who had a photographic memory. So, uh uh-oh. From here, roll call. Forge, Tempo, Sebastian Shaw, Storm, The Stepford Cuckoos, Mr. Sinister, Nightcrawler, Professor X, Magneto, Emma Frost, Iceman, Pyro, Bishop, Callisto, Christian Frost, Mask, and Egg. That's a lot of players here, but uh, we're going to knock out most of them before we even get to the credits page, so... I don't know why there were so many damn names in this roll call. Where some of them are going to appear like in one panel, and so let's let's uh, let's do this right here before we get to our double page spread of creds. We have a meeting of the Quiet Council, where everyone is thankfully sitting in their proper seats. Uh, Sophie Cuckoo is here to tell the council that Emma will not be attending today because she's dealing with Ominous Verendi, the armorers, and a co-op between Madripoor, Russia, and Brazil. She also reveals that a certain scientist, with photographic memory, went missing two days after Xavier's address to the world back during Hoxpox. Now, Shaw kind of shrugs it off and suggests, hey, 
why don't we just send X-Force in there to deal with them? Because X-Force will kill people, left and right. They do it all the time. Sophie repeats herself and says the Marauders are dealing with this. So Emma's off the table right now. The Marauders are going to war. Magneto then communicates with the Cuckoo telepathically to tell her to pass something on to the White Queen. And that message is that they leave no survivors. Yeah, so much for that pesky kill-no-man thing, eh? Hmm. Okay, now, credits. Then an info page. It's an email from Call Me Kate to Nightcrawler. And I would assume this was probably written before Marauders number 6. Uh, she talks about old times, including how she was scared by Storm's mohawk back in the long ago. You know me. I'm a sucker for callbacks. I love any callback to, you know, simpler times and just things that I'm nostalgic for. But do we really need to keep calling back to this same bit where she was scared of Storm's mohawk? I swear they've mentioned it a dozen times in, in ten issues. Can we get past that? Maybe think of something else? Anywho... In this email, she questions why Krakoa has not accepted her, and she also really wants to reconnect with her fuzzy elf. That's not a euphemism. And uh, even invites him to set sail with her on the Marauder. We jump back to comics, and the armorers are on that boat, and they spot an iceberg. Only they're in the South Pacific, where there really shouldn't be any such animal. Of course, we know it's Iceman. So Bobby, he hoists the ship out of the drink, then Emma swoops overhead with the Mercury, which is now a flying saucer. Uh, Bishop and Forge board the bad guy's ship. And Bishop has changed his look here. He has, uh, he has shorter hair now, which makes me wonder if this will remain consistent throughout the rest of the Dawn of X books. I doubt it, but hopefully. I feel like the, the Dawn of X teams don't know that each other exists sometimes. So we'll see. We'll see. Now they happen across Daniels, the photographic memory dude. He apologizes and tells Forge that he was forced to work with these uh, these geeks here. Elsewhere on the boat, Emma and Pyro are also there. Emma unbuttons her top, which reveals, well, nothing, really. Um, it would seem that Ms. Frost has uh, very wide-set nipples or is using copious amounts of double-sided tape. So we see cleavage, not much more. I mean, it's not any more revealing than what Emma usually wears, which is to say, not a whole heck of a lot. Now, she saunters into a hallway full of goons whose sudden southward rushing of blood makes them easy prey for telepathic suggestion, and so Emma has them shoot each other in the knees. The captain of the ship rushes over to the self-destruct button, which, of course, all boats have, right? No, I'm kidding, of course. Ominous Verandy would definitely instruct their underlings to not allow themselves to be captured at any cost. I'm just kidding, you know. Unfortunately for him, Kalisto is here to stop him from pushing that button. Emma then enters the scene and reveals that they're going to beam up the bad guys to the Mercury, where their memories will be erased, and they will return with only warm feelings towards mutants and the oppressed. I guess if you can't reason with people, you just mess with their mind. Now, once everybody's on board the Mercury, the saucer blasts the Verendi boat to smithereens. Inside the flying saucer, uh, Bishop asks Christian Frost how the Mercury does what it does. Like, how is it a, how is it a UFO right now? You know, if it was a submarine, it was a boat... Who knows what it's going to be? Uh, and he also wants to know how Christian can pilot the thing using a piano. Christian ain't telling, and so I guess this mystery will live on. Back on Krakoa, Forge chats up Daniels. Daniels says that he put a lot of hints into his recent work for Verendi in hopes that Forge would pick up on them. Forge reveals that he did not. We then learn that poor Daniels will never be able to return home again. 
Instead, he's going to uh, take up golf in sunny Rio Verde, Arizona. We go to an info page, and it's Kurt's email reply to Call Me Kate, which I hope he wrote before Marauders Number 6. He talks a bit about Kitty's Krakoan handicap and agrees that they really need to set aside some time to reconnect. He'd really like to take that voyage on the Marauder. We wrap up the issue at the hatchery, where yet another attempt at bringing Kitty back has resulted in failure. Egg suggests that Kitty may just not be revivable, and Xavier kind of agrees. We wrap up with the somber note that the next issue of Marauders will contain an actual funeral for a mutant. Next episode, Welcome to the Double Digits, Excalibur number 10. It's worth noting here that this issue has one of them reading order pages at the end of it, right? And it is pre-pandemic and includes Children of the Atom number one releasing on April 15th. And it's a red book, no less, so it's a can't-miss book. Children of the Atom never came out. It is still forthcoming. Uh, we're just going to have to wait until after X of Tens to see it. Though it's interesting to see the uh, the pre-pandemic reading order here, uh, including release dates that have already passed, you know, because this, this book came out a couple months late. I don't know why they didn't update it. I don't know why they didn't just omit it. But here it is. I mean, we had a month's worth of books where we didn't get a reading order, which really freaked me out. And here we are getting one that doesn't matter and doesn't really amount to anything. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they, they must have just printed these up and just not distributed them, is, is my best guess. But let's talk about what we learned here. Stop me if you heard this one before. This was a good issue of Marauders. It wasn't a great one, but it was good. Though I swear it flew by much quicker than usual. Um, by the time we got to the ending and the hatchery, I was sure there should have been a few more pages left. Not that it ended abruptly or anything. The pacing was fine. It just... It was just a pretty damn breezy read, right? So, what do we have to talk about? Um, I suppose we could start at the end. Which, unfortunately, doesn't have quite the oomph that it might have had I read this last spring. Kitty can't be revived. And so, for the first time since Hoxbox, we're going to have a funeral for a mutant. Of course, we already know that they will find a way to bring her back with very, very curly hair. But she will be back. So yeah, certainly by no fault of the book, but I was left a little bit oomphless by this reveal. Um, how about Emma mind-wiping everybody and making them stop hating? Does that seem, I don't know, a little too easy? I mean, it's kind of the perfect play, right? It kind of begs the question, at least for me, why hasn't Emma just pulled this move on everybody who hates mutants? We've got groups like The Right... The Friends of Humanity, you know, all these loser groups, right? Why not just make them come together, sing Kumbaya, and start loving mutants and the oppressed? It seems very, very... I don't know, like throwaway. It's like... I mean, if you play, if you ever play like a role-playing game, like a, a video game RPG, and you get to the point where you have the best spell in the game, best magic spell, why would you even bother using anything else, right? This move from Emma here, where she could just make people stop hating... That is, that's the magic bullet, right? Just do it. I don't care for this method. And, I mean, arguably, it's even a little bit villainous. I mean, if we strip away all the good that this can do by making hate go away, still, at the end of the day, it's it's an invasion and, and perhaps a step over the line. I don't know if that's what Magneto meant by leave no witnesses or whatever he was, he, whatever it was that he said. I think he was thinking just, just kill all these fools, but 
I don't know. Maybe Emma was just being a uh, trying to adhere to the Krakoan Constitution. I don't know. As I was reading this, I had this uh, odd little dissonance where I was sort of trying to put myself into the shoes of a day one comics reader, which I haven't been in a while now. Because this issue of Marauders was the only Dawn of X book to come out for two months. Even the issue after this, Excalibur number 10, readers of the day would have to wait two whole weeks after this to get that. So for a lot of people, this was it. They haven't read an X-comic or new X-comic since the end of March. Here we are at the end of May, and you ain't getting another one until the middle of June. So this was it. Now, this isn't the fault of anybody, and it's absolutely a victim of circumstance, but maybe there was a better issue that could have been put out, which may have been a little bit more satisfying for the starving X-Fan. I mean, again, not the fault of this book. And I mean, there are several members of the reviewing hive mind that scored this a perfect 10 out of 10, so maybe I'm talking out my ass right now. I don't know. And, uh... Yeah, 10 out of 10. Um, I know I rail on about this, probably to stupid amounts here, but that's kind of saying that this issue could not have been any better than it was. I, I feel like I feel like there, there needs to be like a Chrome extension or a, a browser extension where if you run a review site and you use 10 out of 10 more than once in a month, you get red flagged and it's like, maybe you try somewhere a little bit better because this person is just giving giving perfect scores so they can get uh, the pros to share their work. It's pathetic. But this was good. This was a good issue. Wasn't a great issue. Much of it felt like filler. Actually, outside of the ending, it felt a lot like filler. But at least it was mostly well-written filler. So good, not great. Uh, Probably not the satisfying issue you'd be looking forward to for two months. But, uh, you know, reading it the way I'm reading it, you know, it was just another issue. I I don't have that starvation that someone might have had back in the end of May, where I guess you could go one of two ways. You could just absolutely love it because you're just so starving for anything, or you could feel let down because it didn't really scratch the itch, right? Victim of circumstance, absolutely. Good, not great. I am looking forward to the next issue with the uh, with the funeral. That's uh, that's bound to be interesting. So I guess we had to get there. So fair enough. <laughs> that's pretty much all I got to say about Marauders number ten. Now let's hop into the mailbag. Here we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number nine. He says it's interesting that you describe this issue as not being a red issue. Of course, the red issue is referring to the you know the reading order page where the red books are the can't miss ones. But Damien continues, In light of reading X of Tens, I can tell you that this actually is a red issue. In fact, it explains loads of stuff that I didn't understand when reading the first few weeks of X of Tens. I get more and more worried that you are going to hate X of Tens when you get there. Personally, I'm loving that crossover, so I'm finding myself loving other world stories for the first time. Even Alan Moore couldn't cause me to care about Otherworld until now. I'm not sure if I'm just suffering from the comics variant of Stockholm Syndrome. And I tell you, I haven't always hated Otherworld. I thought Alan Davis did some good work with it, but his was mostly played for, you know, wow, this is a very weird place. You know, it was, it was more about the surreality of it than actual, you know, regalness and uh, royalty and Knights of the Round Table sort of stuff. But uh, 
As far as X of Tens is concerned, I'm actually a little nervous about that because this whole project was started to, you know, catch me up so I'd be able to understand X of Tens. And here we are, we're rapidly approaching it. Before we know it, we're going to be knee-deep in it. And I'm no longer worried about not understanding it. Now I'm worried that I'm just going to despise it. (laughs) So I think this is going to be interesting. Um... Hopefully, hopefully I, I get that same Stockholm Syndrome, or I just grow to appreciate it, or maybe the take that they, they give us is something that, that I can jive with. So, fingers crossed. It'll be interesting either way, I guess. Uh, Damien continues. Where we agree wholeheartedly is on Marcus Toe's art. He's getting better and better every month, and is particularly suited to interpersonal relationships, which I also believe is Teeny Howard's biggest strength. And yes, Absolutely. I would say Toe does a lot of the heavy lifting here in the scenes that I don't care about, and he really, really brings it for the scenes I do care about, Um, despite Otherworld not being my jam at all. He is a great fit for this book. Uh, Nothing looks bad here. Everything looks beautiful, Um, whether it's Shogo Dragon flying through the skies or Rogue and Psylocke just having a a little chat. It all all looks great, but... uh, Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Excalibur number 9. Uh, next, we have Al Sedano, and he just wrapped up the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 1s with Fallen Angels number 1. He says, Sorry it's been a while, had some family stuff taking up my time, but now I'm back and raring to get into the next Dawn of X volume, but first we have to finish off the first one. Fallen Angels number 1. This was interesting and felt different from the other titles, more personal. More like a solo title for Psylocke, which I guess is her name now. I don't really know her. I'd stopped reading when she first showed up, and by the time I came back, she was already dead. So I have to ask if her complete lack of understanding of how to talk to people is new or an established part of her personality. Because that conversation between her and Sinister was painful. I was waiting for him to say, wink, wink. And, uh, first, interesting is probably the kindest word I've ever seen attributed to Fallen Angels, so... That's something, for sure. Um, And yes, the dialogue here was pure, 100% unfiltered cringe. (laughs) Not great. Uh, I'm not sure how or when she came back from her legacy virus death. I think she was part of, like, the sisterhood of of evil mutants or something like that. I don't remember where it happened. And it's been a long time since I've read anything, so I can't say whether or not she's supposed to be this socially inept. Or if they just amped it up for this, you know freshman creative writing take on the character? I I don't know. All I know is I didn't like it. Uh, Al wraps up with, uh, let me finish off month one with my ranking so far. He has a few ties here. Number one, the best number one of Dawn of X was Marauders, which is a very, very uh, popular pick. Uh, Number two is a tie between X-Men and New Mutants. Number four is a tie between X-Force and Fallen Angels. Which leaves number six as Excalibur. Ouch. Poor Excalibur. (laughs) Excalibur, I believe I had as my fifth uh, book of the week there, where uh, it just narrowly beat out Fallen Angels. So Al has uh, Fallen Angels just edging out Excalibur. So very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. I am definitely interested in hearing... Any positive takes on Fallen Angels that we can get here Because I just want to understand it (laughs) So uh, if anybody out there has any uh, positive things to say about Fallen Angels Please reach out and let me know We're going to wrap up with an email from Andrew Franklin Regarding Hellions number 1 He says 
Well, I caved in and decided to start reading Hellions along with the pod. Havoc was always my favorite X-Man, and it's a shame that he died in the last issue of X-Factor Volume 1 and has never been seen again. Uh, to which I say, uh, yeah, this show isn't called Mutant X-Lapsed for a reason. <laughs> we don't, uh, we pretend, or we just say that never happened. Uh, Andrew continues. Now, even though I stopped reading when Morrison left, this isn't my first time revisiting the X-Men. I bought all six issues of Astonishing X-Men a few years ago where Havoc was the lead, featuring two of my other favorite X-Men, Dazzler and Colossus. I have nothing good to say about those issues. And I've been collecting those issues myself. Uh, another volume of Astonishing it seemed like such a weird play, especially at the time. If we're thinking about the same one here, when you know both of the ongoing X-Books were color-based. So you had you know X-Men Blue, X-Men Gold, and then... Astonishing X-Men? It just made no sense to me. I haven't read any of it yet, so I really can't speak to its quality, but I do remember feeling like they were just... Like, why did they even bother establishing the blue and gold if they're just going to do an Astonishing book on top of it? Felt very, very weird. Um, And uh, I I hope that we will eventually find out that it uh, served a purpose, but I guess that's uh, neither here nor there. Andrew continues... I'm writing these thoughts after reading Hellions number 1, but before listening to the episode covering it. I wanted to get my own knee-jerk reaction down, good or bad, before reconsidering things. Let me say up top that I thought the issue was fine. I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. I do have issues with the premise, though. I'm aware Alex was turned evil for reasons, and that he was turned not evil for reasons, and the idea of lingering evil isn't bad, per se, but I don't like how it's handled here. It seems very abrupt, like he was fine up until they needed to shoehorn him into a book with the bad guys, and then what do you know? I guess he's not all fixed after all. If it was explored a bit in an issue of X-Men or Giant Size Havoc special, it would have made a little bit more sense organically to me. And I think that was my main misgiving with the Hellions as well. Uh, I'm not sure why they'd shoehorn Alex in here without bothering to give him the benefit of the doubt. I, I talked a bit about, you know, we have him stood before the Quiet Council which is all people, or which is mostly people, who know and love and have worked with Alex for years now. And it's just like they're putting him on trial with Scalp Hunter and, and Nanny. <laughs> it just seems like maybe, you know, maybe give this guy a little bit of the benefit here. So yeah, it does come out of nowhere, though. Maybe that lends credence to the theory that this is all being like orchestrated or manipulated for a greater reason. Maybe Havoc is... An Xavier Mole on the team to watch what Sinister's up to? I don't know. Andrew continues. My other problem with the premise is the fact that after all the times we've seen or heard the Krakoan X-Men brutalize enemies in these Dawn of X books, I could be wrong, but I think characters have killed before. This time it's too much? Alex has to pay the price? Give me a break. And aren't there incredibly powerful telepaths who could help Alex with his lingering evil? Wouldn't that be more sensible solution to either Stasis or having him serve on the penal squad? I have a big problem with this. At least Scott stood up for him. That was my favorite moment, when Magneto says if Alex had killed someone, they'd have no choice but to exile him to the pit, and Cyclops tells the council that, that, that had that happened, he would have no other choice either. That was great. And yeah, it's interesting, the you know the kill-no-man law is conveniently forgotten whenever the situation seems to call for it. And uh, I'm pretty sure I mentioned during the reading, it's like, if this is such a problem, just put Havoc on X-Force. 
right? They kill people left and right. I mean, Jean Grey killed a bunch of people a couple issues back, so yeah, put Havoc on X-Force, right? Hell, I mean, just this very issue of Marauders that we just covered on this episode has Magneto telling the Cuckoo that, hey, don't leave any witnesses. So it's very, very convenient when the Quiet Council decides they want to go, you know, by the book with their laws and uh, the self-righteous way they did it, which where it's like, I understand the concept of deniability, but like Magneto being like a guest that Alex may have almost killed somebody. It's like, come on, dude, <laughs> come on, <laughs> give me a break here. And then Storm kicking Cyclops out of the meeting because he had an objection. Very, very weird, very, very cold, and very kind of up their own asses. Uh, Andrew continues. I real I don't really enjoy books about villains or making villains edgy anti-heroes, but to Hellion's credit, this really doesn't feel like one of those books. The idea of having the more antisocial and violent mutants on a team to learn to to use their talents in a constructive way is a good idea for a team. It's still hard to accept that Sinister is as trusted as he seems to be, and I really don't like the way he's written. I like that they made a point to show that Cyclops also doesn't trust Sinister, and having Psylocke there to keep an eye on things is a good excuse to have her in this book. I'm not sure Scott chose her specifically. Maybe she's serving penance for fallen angels. The rest of the team is an interesting mix of characters, and I like the individual segments they got, except for Wildchild, who is just boring to me. And I, I do love the idea of Psylocke being jammed into this book with the bad guys to pay for the fact that so many of us spent like 30 bucks on that awful Fallen Angels miniseries. I also do love, uh, if, I, if I can be serious here, that since she is included here, I feel like that greatly reduces the possibility that Fallen Angels will ever come back for a season two. So keep her here, keep her prominent, keep Fallen Angels out of the solicitations. Please and thank you. I've come to tolerate Sassy Sinister a bit. Um, as long as I'm able to mentally separate like the real Sinister that I grew up with with this weirdo version, I think I'll be okay. Um, sometimes they do go a step too far, like him telling Scott to, you know, clean his drawers. That was a little weird, but uh, some of the other stuff made me chuckle. And a wild child... Hey, he came from Alpha Flight, so he can't really he just can't help being boring. You know, it's it's kind of a repository for a few cool but mostly a lot of boring characters. So Wild Child is just a victim of circumstance. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, so all in all, this was fine. And though the nostalgia bait of revisiting Inferno stuff has me roll my eyes a bit, I'm curious to see what they actually do with this book, and I'm excited to listen to the episode and hear what you had to say about it. Well, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts here. And by now, you you might know that I I really like this one, though I can totally see why it might not work quite as well for everybody. Um, it might have just been that I went into it with such low expectations. You know, I mentioned during the discussion that I called it an Alvaro book because it's just a random mishmash assortment of characters that wouldn't it be cool if they were on a team together with really no step two. You know, it's like step one, put together a wacky team. Step two, sell the book. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what they do as long as they're wacky and, and, and you know, just obscure. So I really went into it with low expectations. Um, I also thought that this was going to be the X-Men take on Suicide Squad. When, frankly, I feel like the comics industry probably doesn't need the Suicide Squad's take on the Suicide Squad anymore. Because <laughs> it's just beyond done. Uh, so that really didn't fill me with excitement. But, uh... 
With that being said, I thought this was really good, uh, and I'm looking forward to more, which I think we'll be getting to, uh, I think it's episode 81 will be uh, Hellions number two. So we don't have to wait too long, uh, just, a, just a little while to see how this all plays out. But I hope you uh, continue to uh, read along and share your thoughts uh, preemptively before you listen to the show, because uh, I think that's a, that's a really cool way to do it. So thank you so much for sharing, and thanks to everybody for sharing. If anybody else out there would like to share, you can do so easily. I am at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, also xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can find the Facebook group at 90s X-Men and the full Chris and Reggie audio archives at ChrisandReggie.podbean.com. That'll do it for today. We are officially in the double digits of the Dawn of X-Books, which... Didn't think we'd ever get here, but here we are. Um, huge thank you to everyone for uh, you know sharing your time with me and sharing your thoughts as well. I hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. And uh, till next time, as always, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 78 of X-Lapsed, where we reach the halfway point of our giant size books. Today, we're going to be talking about giant size X-Men colon Magneto number one. Now, this one had a September 2020 cover date, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Ramon Perez, colors David Curiel, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White Sabolsky, cover price $4.00. 99 cents and went on sale July 15th of 2020. Now it's worth noting that the solicitation for this issue teases that our creative team is going to be Jonathan Hickman and Ben Oliver, the latter of whom is responsible for the cover of this issue but has nothing to do with the interiors. Not sure what happened, but hey, you know, stuff does happen, especially this year. I just felt it was something that was worth noting. Uh, the rest of the solicit is nebulous and ambiguous enough that it could mean anything. So, for all I know, the story we're about to read 
was always the intended one. Don't know, couldn't say. Anywho, we open in the now, with Magneto taking a large Hellfire freighter way out to the Faroe Islands. Now, this is a group of islands that I swear I've heard of before, but, you know, I probably wouldn't be able to point them out on a globe if my life depended on it. According to my deep, deep wiki research, uh, the Faroe Islands are located about 200 miles northwest of Scotland. They're about halfway between Denmark and Iceland. Uh, Magneto, he's here, he deboards and he starts to chat up this particular island's caretaker. Now this island, and uh, there are a few ways I could pronounce this, uh, probably all wrong. It's either Mykines, 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 M-Y-K-I-N-E-S. That's the island, I'll probably say Mykines. Um, now this is the westernmost of the Faroe Islands, measuring it at four square miles in size, with a population as of 2018 of 10. Yeah, just 10, not 10, not 10,000, not 10 million, just 10. Uh, the highest recorded population that Mykines enjoyed was circa 1925 when it boasted 179 residents. So uh, those are some tremendous highs, and now we're on the other end of that. Okay, so Magneto, he's talking to this fella, and comes flat out and says, I want to buy this island outright. The caretaker informs him that, uh, hey, you know, you're chatting with the wrong guy. He just watches over the place. There's another dude who actually owns it. Now, Magneto appears to know exactly who this other dude is and asks the caretaker to, do a, to deliver a message. The caretaker informs Magneto that this dude isn't known for keeping regular work hours, and so it may take a little while before hearing a response. Magneto is cool with it and says he'll wait, and so that's exactly what he does. From here we get our roll call. It's Magneto, Emma Frost, and Namor. Single-page spread of creds, how about that only one? Come back to comics, and we go back in time. It's flashback land here. Magneto and Emma Frost are talking on Krakoa. The latter has invited the former to dinner at the White Palace. Uh, Not the White Castle, unfortunately. Now, this is an offer that Magneto couldn't pass up, considering Emma's new on-site chef, Saucier, is wildly talented. And from the looks and sounds of it, particularly surly, cantankerous even. Magneto chows down on some sinfully delicious lobster, which verifies that, uh, yeah, this old saucier's got some chops. Now, Emma finally decides to get down to business and tells Eric that she needs a favor. And you know, I'm pretty sure I've asked this before, but when exactly did we go back to referring to Magneto as Eric? I remember the last time I was, you know, this invested, uh, they were really pushing that Max Eisenhardt identity on us. I don't know when it ba- went back to Eric. Is it still Eric Lenscher, or... I don't know. Maybe someone out there knows. Anywho, this favor is... Uh, well, she's got a plan, but in order to make this plan happen, she's going to need an island. So we're back to Mykonos, where Magneto is still waiting there. He's hanging out among the puffins. Uh, he's cold, so he decides to move a teensy bit inland to start a fire. There really isn't all that much inland on this tiny island. Uh, he is soon joined by the caretaker, who informs him that the message has been delivered. And, you know, whenever his, fo- his boss feels like it, he'll give him his answer. Magneto's not all that surprised. Now, if we, you know, flip back just a page or two here, and we recall the third name we listed on the roll call page, well, then I suppose this big reveal has already been spoiled now, hasn't it? I'm not sure why we're bothering with all the KG dialogue here when we know from the roll call page that this mystery man they're talking about is going to be Namor. 
And so, bada-bing, bada-boom, the man himself, Namor, leaps out of the sea to greet Magneto. And they share a rather, you know, contentious, uh, you know, hey, how you doing, right? Uh, Magneto calls Namor out for keeping him waiting, to which Namor reminds our man that he is, in fact, a king and people will wait for him. Further, Namor claims that a a visit from a mutant is a fairly meaningless thing nowadays, since being a mutant in the first place gets less and less special every day. Talk about a self-loather, eh? Magneto decides, hey, let's get down to business, and says, hey, I want this island. Namor does not seem adverse to the idea, but says he's going to need a favor as well, and he invites Magneto to go with him for a swim. And so they dive into the deep, dark sea to a place called the Malloy Deep. Now they finally reach their destination, which is a door, sorta. It's a great big round door, which Namor points out is adorned with the spiral of the old kings of Atlantis. And it looks kind of like a kraken, so uh, I'll give you three guesses as to what's behind it. Namor asks Magneto if he can open it, and duh, of course he can. Unfortunately, this leads us to four pages of watching our heroes fighting, duh, a big kraken, or kraken, however you say that, a big sea creature. Uh, They even wind up eaten by the thing, and if I'm seeing this right, they have to swim out its uh, other end. Now they find themselves stood before some serenas. They're basically sea hags. They do this weird, like, you know, gatekeeper gimmick where they offer Namor the choice of picking up a spiral or a stone. One, they say, will save his life. The other will end it. Namor picks up the spiral, which looks kind of like a large snail shell. Once he grabs it, the critter within jams its tentacles right down Namor's throat. It's Magneto's turn, and our man is too smart to play the game. He notes that the hags gave two options, however, right now they're standing before three pillars. And so he chooses whatever the third thing is. Turns out it's a crystal, which he shatters, which renders all the serenas, save one, into... Bones? Skeletons? I don't know. Okay. It also saves Namor, so there's that too. The one remaining sea hag, who now appears to be far more haggy, it's as though maybe that crystal was keeping her young, I don't know, she hands over a key to Magneto, and our men are free to go. Once topside, they get back to business, and Namor hands over the island. Magneto then unpacks the Hellfire freighter, creating quite the wacky-looking citadel complete with a sentinel head, which looks a little bit like that entrance to the vault from a few issues of uh, X-Men ago. Our man then plants a gateway seed and is soon joined by Emma Frost. Magneto explains that it used to belong to Namor, this island that is, but now it belongs to her. He then asks what she intends to do with it, to which she says she will send invitations and see who shows up. The end. Uh, Next episode, we're going back to the new muse real quick with New Mutants number 11, but let's see if we can figure out anything to talk about with this giant-sized issue. Um... You know, uh, one thing I'll hand it. Uh, I am a sucker for world building, and this this issue did a little bit of that, literally. I mean, we are expanding uh, the the sphere of influence uh, that the mutants have here to yet another island, and it's going to be an island that I suppose Emma Frost will control or have some some sort of leadership role on, or she has designs on it, so... It's setting, it's setting some seeds here, so I guess we'll see what happens there. Uh, as for everything else, huh, I mean, it didn't lie. 
Uh, last time we talked about a giant size issue was Nightcrawler, and Nightcrawler was certainly not the the focus character. Here, at least, a giant size Magneto gives us a giant size Magneto story. What the greatest story really seemed kind of weird to have him dealing with, uh, you know, underwater sea hags and a kraken, but. Hey, whatever, right? It got us to the point where we got this new island with a weird sentinel head on it. Um, but as far as you know, you know me. I anytime we talk about a giant size issue, I bring up the fact that it's a dollar more expensive than a regular issue. So it's five dollars for a story that I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Maybe isn't quite worth five dollars I know that these giant size books Are supposed to be like the artist showcases here uh, Or the artist spotlight But but they gave us a bait and switch here We were supposed to have Ben Oliver And instead we got Ramon Perez And um, you know nothing against Ramon Perez here But the art really didn't stand out to me You know if if we're doing something that's You know quote unquote the artist showcase here then I expect to have my socks knocked off, and I, I didn't. It was good. It was good art. Uh, no better than, you know, nothing exceptional, though. So I don't know what the purpose of this was. Unless, of course, he was just a, you know, pinch batting for uh, for Ben Oliver, which is certainly a possibility. But uh, even so, eh, <laughs> I don't know. There wasn't a whole lot to this issue. Just like the last two issues of Giant Size we looked at, we looked at Giant Size uh, Jean Grey and Emma Frost and Giant Size Nightcrawler. Now with Giant Size Magneto, these could have just been extra issues of X-Men. And they could have been trimmed down so they would fit the regular page length. Uh, It seems like this is just really dipping when you don't need to dip. I I mean, X-Men is, for all intents and purposes, a one-shot book now. We're not getting extended stories in there, except for the ridiculous brood one. But we're usually getting these one-and-done stories that any of these stories that we're getting in Giant Size could have been fit into. And it would have been fine. We wouldn't have even batted an eye at it. But here we are, paying an extra dollar for something that, you know, it really isn't feeling all that special. You know, you think about... Back in the day, how annuals and things like Giant Sizes and King Size specials they were special. You know, they had this feeling where they were a little bit more than what you'd usually get. Here, um, I swear I read this issue in under 10 minutes. That's not good, you know? And, and I, I do understand that that's just the way things are these days, but still not good. <laughs> not something that I would uh, tell anyone to run out and grab. Um, uh, if you're a Magneto completionist or a Namor completionist or... You just want to know uh, about the islands that the X-Men will inhabit or occupy? Then this one's for you. Otherwise, I think you could probably skip it. And if this Faroe Island ever comes back up again, I mean, that's what editorial footnotes are for. Just say, hey, this happened in this book. If you want to read it, go read it. (laughs) Because you don't absolutely have to. Unless you really, really want to see Magneto and Namor crawl out of a Kraken's ass. You know. But yeah, that was Giant Size X-Men, colon, Magneto, number one. Let's uh, dip into the mailbag here. We have a Damien double take today here. We're going to talk about two books with Damien. The first of which is Wolverine number two. Now, Damien says, well, I'm not in love with this Wolverine series. 
I quite like some of the characterization. The scene with the beers on the lawn worked really well, and it's beautifully drawn, but I'm not all in on the story. As you say, the deaths are meaningless and don't even add jeopardy in the current era. Yeah, there really isn't much to this, is there? I mean, I think my main takeaway from both issues of the Wolverine series so far was that I kind of dig this this Bannister guy. I think he's pretty cool. And uh, like you said here, the scene with the beers on the lawn was pretty cool. We have... There was a bit at the end there where Wolverine just goes to throw his bottle, and uh, and Jeff Bannister, the man with the manicured lawn, he goes, "Dude, come on!" <laughs> you know, thought that was kind of cute. That was pretty good. But uh, and yeah, it looks great. It looks great. Uh, but it just doesn't feel like anything really. Doesn't feel like anything really worth paying attention to. Uh, Damien wraps up with. I was surprised you didn't pick up on the parallel between the sick daughter and the pale girl. I suppose we'll find out next issue. And no, I did not. I didn't put together any sort of parallels between the two of them. I wonder if that will be a revelation uh, that we'll get next issue. That that could be very interesting. It would also be kind of subtle, which is not something I really expect from uh, from the writer of this uh, Wolverine series. I, I, I'm, I assume that we're just going to always be bashed over the head with everything, so... This bit of subtlety is uh, not welcome, and it would be very interesting to see play out. Uh, next, Damien's going to talk about my favorite issue, X-Men number 9. He says, It's ironic that you ask us about jumping off points whilst reviewing the issue where I jumped off of Dawn of X. Rereading this issue, it's actually worse than I remember. I really don't have Hickman's love of space nonsense, and this storyline centered it. I was able to cope with it in New Mutants, where characters were set, a, set ahead of the space nonsense. That's also the strength of the original Brood Saga by Claremont, Cockrum, and Smith. But this is too much. Totally agree. 100%. Um, in the New Mutant stories, you know, it hardly even mattered that they were in space, right? It was just a setting, like any other. And it was the characters that were given the spotlight, and uh, their, their interpersonals and all that stuff... They could have been in the desert, they could have been in space, they could have been under the sea, it doesn't matter. This, though, I hated this issue. I I try not to say hate when it comes to comics, because, to be honest, it's a pretty strong emotion to harbor against a stack of paper, (laughs) but, oh, I hated this. I thought this was just too much, right? Um... If I didn't have the, you know, the comics sickness that I have, where I just can't walk away, I think I'd be right there with you, and this would have been the issue that I would have said, okay, tapping out, done, can't do it. I hated this issue that much, and I can't remember any other time, like another issue of any comic series that made me actually just want to drop it cold. This one did, because it just, it, it felt like, you know, a kick in the teeth. It was just like, this is... Time we're wasting, and and all for like a goofball. Oop, brew ate the egg. What? Why? Why? We didn't need to do this for two months. Uh, Damien continues. By the way, you said they retconned the origin of the brood. Does that mean it's no longer that Claremont and Cockrum watched Alien and thought, "Hey, we could do that." <laughs> and it's funny you mention that because that brings me to another Usenet flashback. Um, I remember being. Kind of heartbroken when folks would point out how how at times Claremont could be unoriginal, you know? Uh, you think about all the stuff that he added to the X-Men and to, to comics in general. 
And then someone goes through it with a comb, and it's like, well, he took this from here, this from here, this from here. And I mean, we have the Brood as the alien ripoffs. We have the Imperial Guard as Legion stand-ins. We got the Star Jammers having some Star Wars elements. We got the Hellfire Club being the Hellfire Club, right? Probably a bunch more that I'm forgetting. But uh, I was so saddened by these revelations, and I'm not even sure why, because writers borrow from each other all the time. So... You know, there's that saying that there's nothing new under the sun, and, and, and there's very few things new under the sun, I suppose, is probably a more accurate statement, but I think we all draw inspiration from wherever, consciously or otherwise. So I remember always getting a little bummed out when people would be like, well, yeah, Claremont's not that great. He got this from here and this from there. and Yeah. <laughs> Damien continues. You asked about when we jumped off books, and most of mine have been related to real-world events. In 1989, I got my first part-time job in McDonald's, and I was 15 and wasn't expected to contribute to the household. I was war- I was earning two pounds... I don't know, how do you say that? It would be two dollars and one cent here, but uh, is it like two pound one, or is it something, something pence? I, I don't know how to say. Foreign to me money, I, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, uh, we'll keep going here. Uh, he was earning 2.01 pounds an hour, and comics were 50p each. At that point, I was buying everything I could get my hands on by both Marvel and DC. It was only when I went to university in 1992 that I had to start dropping comics. In fact, I dropped back to just one ongoing, Sandman, and spent most of my comics budget on back issues, which were often considerably cheaper than new comics. Gradually, my comics collection crept back up, and I was back to reading Uncanny by issue 300. I stuck around until the, ed- the end of the Age of Apocalypse. And that was a good run. Uh, 300 to the, uh, to the AOA. Probably what I'd consider my wheelhouse. You know, if I had to pick an era that kind of just... That brought me in and didn't let go. You know, that that was pretty much it. Um, that's kind of where I formed my love and appreciation for this franchise. And uh, probably the first time I felt like I was on solid ground with uh, the concepts and the characters, right? Uh, I came in at the tail end of the Uncanny 200s, which was a very hectic time. And a time in which it felt like there was a whole lot of spaghetti being thrown at the wall. You know, just seeing what might stick. I feel like by the time we hit 300, Lobdell, Nisi, Asa, and company, they had a pretty good feel for the characters and the direction. So it was more grounded, it was more uh, stable, you know, uh, more consistent. Whereas before that it was like, well, let's see if this works. And no, no, it didn't. Let's try something else. It felt very, very wobbly. I actually recall being nervous about the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, I was still young to the hobby, and I didn't know much about gimmicks that didn't involve foil and holograms. So actual gimmick storytelling was something completely foreign to me. I enjoyed the Age of Apocalypse once I realized it wasn't going to be permanent. Because the thing of it was... um, for, for someone who takes things quite as literally as I do, you know, Marvel, they were wise to make this era run for four months, right? Considering that, you know, previews catalogs would give you two or three months ahead. So while you're reading in issue one and you grab the next previews magazine or previews catalog, you saw that we were still in the Age of Apocalypse then. So you had this weird kind of, or I had this like weird kind of stomach churning there. It was like, uh-oh, uh, are we not going back? And maybe it was made perfectly clear that these were four-issue minis, but I didn't know it. And uh, it made this move feel more real. 
So, like, we were reading X-Men Alpha, which kicked it off. We didn't already know that X-Men Omega was in the offing. I'm sure some people did, but I didn't. So it was just like, wow, this might be un- this might be just the way things are for a bit, you know? So that was kind of nerve-wracking for uh, how old was I then? 14, 15? Uh, young and dumb, or, or one or the other. Maybe both. Uh, Damien continues. I left after the Age of Apocalypse because the first few issues afterwards were all terrible. Yes, they were. <laughs> they were. Uh, I think I explained this, uh, my sensation around this time as it being having the feeling like it was the day after Christmas. You know, everything we were looking forward to was over, and everything just kind of felt flat. Um, I actually wound up walking away from my first ex-hiatus uh, three to four months after the AOA wrap myself, so... I wasn't long for the fandom after that either. Uh, Damien continues, I came back for Claremont's return, but only lasted two issues. Yeah. (laughs) Now this was rough. Uh, I remember how excited everyone was for this. Um, People were prepared and proclaiming for this to be the next golden age for the X-Men before the first regrettable issue even hit the stands. Um, I remember reading on, on Usenet, you know, the old stomping grounds, that there were folks who were hoping that Claremont would come back and, you know, do the whole Patrick Duffy thing. He would Patrick Duffy out the entire previous decade, making it all a bad dream. And, well, it wasn't long before we all learned that there might be a little something to that whole you-can't-go-home-again saying. Uh, I think people wanted Claremont to come back and play the hits for a bit, but he didn't. I think uh, by the time Claremont came back, I was... I don't know how familiar I was with his original run. Um, He came back... What was it? Like around 2000. So I probably had read either the first or the first two of the Essentials volumes. So that's pretty much what I knew of Claremont. And then whatever back issues I was able to find cheap uh, leading into his departure... So I didn't know Claremont then the way I do now, but I was still expecting something far different than what we actually wound up getting. I thought we would do like a, you know, old home week, you know, uh, the the high school reunion where it's like, okay, here are the characters, this is the original vision, and let's let's get going here. Let's do let's let's play some hits, and then then we start doing our our tryout garage band stuff, right? Instead of that. We got this weirdness with, like, the Neo, who were supposed to be, like, a step above mutants, even though they were absolutely the same. And then there were hints that, like, Kitty Pride was one of the Neo, or she was switched in the in the bassinet or something. We got the Twisted Sisters. It was just awful, awful stuff. And this was a huge surprise to, like, everyone, because it felt like he was almost... It was almost like he was trying to write the worst, most incomprehensible X-Men stories that would ever be told, right? It's like you have to try to fail that spectacularly. Speaking of which, let's go to Damien's next point. He says, I came back from Morrison, but left when I heard Chuck Austin was taking over. (sighs) Chuck Austin. Um, I've met a lot of folks who took a break when he came on the books. I actually know a few people who were permanently cured of their ex-fandom when he showed up. So he is a divisive fellow. I stuck out through the entire thing, but I totally understand why people wouldn't. And it's weird. 
Because I remember when it was announced that Austin was taking over Uncanny from Joe Casey, who had a bit of an incomprehensible run himself, I was kind of excited. I was excited for Austin to come on. Um, I'd only read a few things from him. I read uh, U.S. War Machine, which came out through the Max imprint. It was one of the Max launch books. Uh, I think it was like a 12-issue miniseries. It was like all in black and white, so it was a, like a buck or a buck fifty an issue. I think it was weekly. But uh, I remember that, and I, I thought that was okay. And then also the Ultimate X-Men Annual that introduced Gambit. I thought that was good, too. I thought that was all pretty okay. But that didn't last long, did it? <laughs> Uh, handing Morrison's new X-Men over to him was, like, staggeringly misguided here because they moved Austin from Uncanny over to new X-Men, which went back to being regular X-Men, and I believe, I might be mistaken, but I think they brought Claremont back for Uncanny around that time for another go because Extreme was over with. So, yeah, felt very, very misguided, but then again, maybe Joe Casada was still in temper tantrum mode and was trying to send a message... That Morrison wasn't all that great? I don't know. Damien continues. My comics budget has always been tight, and every X-Men book I buy stops me from buying something else. I currently buy no DC books, as I got really into X of Tens and bought all 32 parts. I always feel a little bit guilty about how much I spend on comics, and I think that is one of the things that encourages me to drop books. If I spend four pounds on a comic that I only read once when I already own thousands that I would happily reread, can I really justify that expense? And that's something I, I don't worry about because I'm a dirty addict. <laughs> I buy books that I know I'll never actually get around to reading. Uh, just so I keep my runs intact. It's not... It's a really bad place to be as a, as a fan of any sort of hobby and a collector of any sort of media because it, you're a slave to it. And I am absolutely a, a prisoner to this addiction, you know, this collection. It's um, definitely not a bit good place to be. Not a good place to be. Uh, right now, I've dropped, I've dropped a bunch of DC books, but I still collect far too many, especially since I haven't actually read a new DC comic in like a year Maybe more? I mean, at that point, buying just one DC book would be too many, right? But it's like, I got these runs. I've got, uh, I've got so many titles that I've got collected since, like, the day I was born. So it's hard for me to pull, you know, pull the trigger and stop buying action comics. You know, I've got, like, a 600-issue run, uh, you know, a straight through of action comics, and it's... I hate what's going on there now, but at the same time, it's like, do I really just invalidate the rest of my, like, make my collection less complete just because I'm not enjoying this? I think uh, what we in the biz would call uh, part of the problem is what I am. <laughs> I'm definitely part of the problem. A big part of it. Uh, Damien continues. I'd like to thank you for describing me as mentally balanced. Would you be willing to repeat that in a court of law? And yes, I would sign anything you need me to sign. I absolutely would. I am, after all, a psych grad student, so my word carries probably a little bit less than anybody in off the street. So whatever, whatever I can do, I'll do. Uh, Damien continues. Seriously, it's nice to hear how much you appreciate the feedback. I just wish I could be as, as consistent as you. I still struggle to produce one podcast a month. I'm in awe of your work ethic. And thank you. That means, that means a lot. That really does. And the feedback is fantastic. Um... It's definitely provided some of the funnest times I've spent 
in, you know, it's been almost five years that I've been creating content every day. Uh, January 30th of 2016, so we're just shy. Um, we're under two months away from the five-year anniversary of, of me putting out content. And uh, the feedback I get on this show is some of the greatest uh, stuff. It's really, really good. It really helps to keep me motivated. And it's, uh, I, I can't explain it. It's just, it's such a good feeling. It's a really, really good feeling. And consistency. I mean, I just mentioned that I'm addicted to <laughs> collecting stuff that I'm probably never going to read that's just going to take up space. Consistency is a little bit easier when you have such an addictive personality. So it's probably not the best thing in the world, at least not for me. Uh, because, you know, they say the best stuff. Uh, the best stuff creatively, the best stuff just in life is intrinsic, right? Whereas there is an intrinsic element to what I do. Um, it's a little less intrinsic and more obsessive, if that makes any sense. You know, it's uh, it's funny. Uh, Reggie and I would talk a lot about the collector's mindset. You know, that was something that we talked about a lot off the air. Something that just fascinated both of us because... Uh, it's just something that we all have in common, right? At, at varying levels, of course, but we all have that in common that we do collect things. We like having things to keep and to look at and to read and to share and to show people. It's a... I think that's something we all have in common. So we would talk about that a lot. We would try to, like, break it down to, like, what what inspires us to do it? And I, I don't know that there's actually any sort of answer to that, because I think we all do it for different reasons. Of course, there's overlap, but it's like a spirograph version of a Venn diagram, right? So we have all these circles that are like overlapping in weird places over and over again. So it's a lot of different things that fuel the collector's mindset. And uh, while we talked about this, um, I became his first case study, probably because, you know, I got it bad, right? <laughs> I have it really bad. Reggie was able to, um, for pragmatic reasons and for space reasons, he was able to winnow down his collection to just the things that he cared most about. I can't do that sort of thing. I don't have that kind of willpower and control to where I know that there are bo long boxes in the other room that I'll never open again, you know, and uh, I still can't get rid of them. He was able to do that kind of thing. So I became the first case study to just try to get to the bottom of this. And we talked a lot about collecting and the need to have things and the need to keep up with things, right? Like physical things. From there, I broke off to discuss collecting things like uh, content, self-made content, right? Uh, at least to me, it seems just as, if not a bit more collectible than whatever your chosen hobby or passion might be. Right now... If you were to go over to xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com, you'd see the, you know, the official subdomain for this show. You'll see that I utilize the blogger Flipcard format. Okay, now the Flipcard format is basically just that. It's just a bunch of little panels, really. Because as sad as this might sound, it gives me the opportunity to view everything that we've done with this show at a glance. To me, looking at the screen with all these little tiles on it, 
because each tile represents a program. It's like a great big collection right there in front of me, something that we created, and it's we keep adding to it, and it keeps growing. I And it feels like something that we are collecting. You know, it could be wildly collectible, self-made content, uh, if, if you're the kind of person like me who's kind of kind of whacked out and stuck on completionism and uh you know just a, a big old weirdo but rest assured the shows will keep coming because i i can't let go so <laughs> we're all good there now that'll do it for today if anybody would like to get a hold of me you could do so a couple different ways you can reach me at ace comics on the twitter machine or via weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com you can check out blog posts and show notes at chrisoninfiniteearth.com. And as mentioned, you can see the wicked cool flip cards at uh, xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can see the wonderful collection that we've put together there. Uh, you could chat us up about whatever you want at 90s X Men on Facebook. And you could check out the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And that includes. He and I talking about collecting, and him actually having his own program where he talked about collecting with a bunch of other people. So if that's your thing, that's definitely where you can find it. But uh, I think that's where we will put a pin in it today. Uh, not so giant size episode for a giant size issue, but uh, yeah, we do what we can. Uh, one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 86 of X-Lapse, where I hope it's not too distracting, but somewhere down the block, someone is having tile removed from their house, and uh, the machinery to get this tile out of their house, well, I think they had to summon a demon to uh, to get this stuff up, because there's a lot of racket out there. Hopefully, the mic isn't picking it up, but generally speaking, the mic usually picks up everything I don't want it to, and uh, a lot of the stuff I do... Uh, 
Sometimes it doesn't, but we will hope for the best here. Today, we're going to be talking about the final uh, Wave 2 book of the Dawn of X uh, lineup here, and that is X-Factor Volume 4. Now, this was an issue, or a series, I should say, that I've been looking forward to uh, a great deal. And uh, ever since I found out that X-Factor was rejoining the lineup, I've been very anxious to get to it, and uh, that's because X-Factor, as a property is a very special one to me in that from it I learned probably more about the X-Men lore and X-Men history than any other book when I was starting out in my uh, little fandom career back in you know the early 1990s. X-Factor was, for all intents and purposes, the fourth book. You know, uh, there were the big four, which were Uncanny X-Men, X-Men Volume 2, X-Force, and then X-Factor kind of tailed, you know, it wasn't, it didn't have, you know, a hot artist on it. Uh, it would eventually have very popular artists on it, uh, in retrospect anyway, but it was always just that other book. And uh, by other book, I mean, it was a book that you could actually find in the back issue bins, not inflated to crazy, crazy prices like you would the other three uh, mainline X-Men books. And it was a book that I almost, and this is a story I've told uh, on this channel a couple times already, just I don't think I've ever done it on X-Lapsed. Though I could be mistaken, I do talk an awful lot, and uh, frankly I don't remember a whole lot of what I say because I do this a lot. So uh, we'll, uh, I'll just hope that this is novel or being presented in novel enough a way not to turn people off who have heard these stories before, but... Uh, X-Factor was a book I was never going to collect. As a matter of fact, I was never going to collect anything but X-Men Volume 2 when I started. I decided that was the book I wanted. That was the book that I figured I could probably go back and get the entire collection because I started at around 12 or 13. Uh, 13, actually. And so it wouldn't be too terribly difficult, or at least not outside the realm of possibilities, for me to go back and get everything from Issue 1 onward. So... X-Men Volume 2 was going to be the X-Men book I collected. Everything else I didn't really concern myself with. Of course, the second issue of X-Men Volume 2 I picked up was, I want to say, Part 3 of the Executioner song. I didn't know what a crossover was at that point in time. I really... I didn't pay much mind to it. I figured... I figured that every issue should be able to be read on its own, which is kind of Pollyanna and kind of pie in the sky, and a sure sign of a newcomer to the uh, comics hobby, because that's uh, very seldom the case, even when it's not a crossover anymore. So I picked up that issue of X-Men Volume 2 and uh, realized very quickly that, uh-oh, I'm going to have to actually buy the other books that tie into this if I want to get the most out of it. And so I had to actually hunt down Uncanny X-Men, what was it, 294? I want to say 294, the one with Cable standing over Professor X, the first part of the Executioner song. I had to actually hunt that one down because it sold out everywhere. It sold out at the uh, local comic shops. I had to actually find it at a smoke shop and uh, just on a regular old spinner rack, which as a comic fan of that era was like the last place you'd look because... Uh, I don't know. They just never really came to mind. Everything was at the comic shop. So the thought of having to go to a spinner rack, I don't know, just didn't come to mind. So 
I had to track down that issue, and then of course I would have to track down part two of the uh, of the series, which was X Factor. And I grabbed it. And uh, the thing about these issues were it was they didn't have the variant cover gimmick like we have today, so I really didn't have to pay attention to numbers. Um, all I had to pay attention to was uh, the fact that all of these books had a different gimmick. They were all polybagged with a trading card. So they were very, very easy to pick out. So I was just picking up the ones with the, with the bag, right? <laughs> you know, it wasn't, uh, this ain't rocket surgery. So I was picking those up. And uh, this is when I decided that I would be all in on the X-Men books. And so I remember I cleared out a shelf in my closet because I was going to have four... Four piles of, uh, you know, my massive, massive comics collection, which was like, you know, eight books at this point. I was going to have my uh, my Uncanny pile, my X-Men pile, my X-Force pile, and my X-Factor pile. And as I'm familiarizing myself with these things here, uh, I noticed something very bizarre about X-Factor. And that was the fact that the issues I was reading were numbered in the 80s. Which is to say, you know, it was like issue 85 And I was just gobsmacked Because I had never imagined that this was such a long-tenured title And I sure I sure didn't know that it was originally started with the original five um, At this point in time, I'm sure I didn't know who the original five even were I, I'm pretty sure uh, Early in my collecting career, I remember getting um, I, th- I think it was Sons of Marvel Origins Sons of Marvel Origins, maybe? One of those w- One of the, you know, compilations of the number one issues that would uh, that were collected And you'd find them, you know, in a bookstore, in a library And uh, I think it was Sons of Origins of Marvel Comics I picked up And it had X-Men number one in it And I was gobsmacked that, like, Wolverine wasn't in it You know, I was, I was amazed that the original five who were who they were, right? Uh, Beast, Iceman, Angel, Marvel Girl, Cyclops I had a feeling Cyclops and Marvel Girl would be there. I didn't know about the other three. I didn't realize that they were that old or that integral to um, to the X-Men story. I was, like I said, I was very, very new. So, you know, I'm back to X-Factor here. I'm seeing that these are higher in numbers. And I was uh, shocked because I thought that it would have a similar number as X-Force and X-Men Volume 2. I figured it would be like in the teens. Because I thought everything launched at the same time outside of, you know, the legacy book itself, Uncanny X-Men. And so I started digging in the back issue bins. And the thing about X-Factor is, like I said, it was like the fourth book. And I suppose at the time it was coming out, it was like the third book because it was just Uncanny and New Mutants and X-Factor. X-Factor was the book that didn't get upcharged so much. I could find Issues going back into the single digits of X-Factor in the back issue bins for $2 a piece, where I could look at the X-Force issue that came out two weeks ago, and it's already $5. So I decided that, okay, I might be able to do this with X-Factor. It's going to take me forever, but I could probably do it. So while my friends were, uh, you know, saving up to pick up the early issues of X-Force that we missed out on, or, you know, pooling their lunch money for an entire week to get one chapter from the Muir Island saga... I was in the back issue bins buying the early issues of X-Factor. I bought the first appearance of Apocalypse for for $2 because nobody cared because it was X-Factor. I bought the entire Judgment War for like $1.50 a piece because nobody cared. It was X-Factor. There were a few issues of X-Factor that were hard to find. Uh, If they had 
I know the one after the Judgment War that had Sabretooth on the cover was a big one. And of course, uh, as you got closer to the Peter David run, and you had the uh, Wills Protasio uh, art on those issues, you know, you had the Inhumans show up and they sent baby Nathan into the future. Those were a bit uh, hard to find. But as far as the early ones were concerned, I, they were very plentiful and they were very, very cheap. And from them, I was able to learn so much about X-Men history. Uh, so much that my friends didn't know because they weren't going to this book. Uh, so much about the original five, finding out that Cyclops was married. Finding out that Cyclops had a kid. Finding out that, you know, uh, Jean Grey came back. She was never Phoenix, or that she was Phoenix in the first place. All this stuff was brand new to us because we didn't know anything about the X-Men. So... From X Factor, I was I became like the the world's lamest Paul Revere. You know, I was just telling people everything I could about everything I knew, which wasn't much, but it was more than I maybe should have if I was just you know reading the current day stuff. But X Factor, very very special book to me. Um, uh, another story I've told before is how I came into possession of the first issue of it, which was a uh, mall convention. I was at a mall convention at the Sunvet Mall on uh, Sunrise Highway uh, in Long Island. And a mall con, if uh, you're unfamiliar with them, and uh, you know they don't really exist anymore, uh, malls or mall conventions, I suppose, but uh, the thing of it was a bunch of vendors, a bunch of local vendors would show up at a mall, and they'd put up their tables, and they'd put out their wares, and uh, you'd get good deals on stuff because it was like the purest form of a comic book convention. It was just people who wanted to buy and read comics, and I suppose at the time invest in comics, coming together to buy and read and discuss and invest in comic books. And I was digging through one of the boxes here, and I found X-Factor number one. And I was shocked that it was only five dollars because this is you know 1991 1992 where we're trained that these number one issues are just going to break your bank and so when i saw this for five dollars i i busted out the five dollar bill i probably begged my parents for before uh while they were doing food shopping at the path mark and i bought x factor number one and that was like my first like legacy x book number one uh and I, I couldn't have been prouder, which is probably a very, very pathetic thing to say. But at the time, it was uh, it was the coolest thing in the world to me. So any time X-Factor comes into conversation, it's, it always gives me a warm feeling. Because, uh, I, like I said, it just it informed so much of what I know as the X-Men. And uh, it's probably the first instance in comics collecting where I became nostalgic for an era that I wasn't a part of. Uh, that's how special those early issues of X-Factor were to me. And a lot of it's right place, right time, and right price, of course. But that doesn't you know, change the fact that these are important to me. So I would always be there for a, a launch of X-Factor. Uh, in Probably around the turn of the century, we had a four-part miniseries, which was pretty bad and had nothing to do with the team, but they used the name anyway. I don't know if they were just trying to keep the copyright going, if that's even a thing that they'd have to do. Uh, we did get that weird four-issue series, and then Peter David came back, and we had X-Factor Investigations, and uh, then that rejoined the legacy numbering. It went from, like, Volume 2, Issue 50, or Volume 3, I suppose it would be, Issue 50, to Volume 1, Issue 200, I believe, in the next issue. 
And I followed that one through and uh, was very disappointed when it uh, when it wound up circling the drain and then was brought back as uh, all new X Factor, which uh, paired with I think it was Carmine G- D Giancomo. <laughs> Carmine, his, this guy Carmine did the art, and I was not a fan of it. I was not a fan of it at all, and didn't really like the uh, the premise either. But I stuck with it because it was X Factor, and that's kind of what I do. And then here we are with, uh, I suppose this is volume four of X Factor, and uh, I suppose I've wasted enough of your time with my nostalgia waxing here. So how about we get into this one because I have high expectations for it, which is probably unfair. But uh, we'll see how uh, how it lives up to it here. Uh, let's get right on in. It's uh, X Factor, Volume 4, Number 1. This had a September 2020 cover date. The story title's a little pretentious, or a little precious. It's Sweet Number 1, Prelude, Aurora Moratorium. Okay. Uh, and this is not the as precious as they'll get here. I, I was uh, just entering the newest issue into my Excel spreadsheet, and... Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> These names are going to go... A little bit further out there. Uh, this is written by Leo Williams, with art by David Baldion. Colors, Israel Silva. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller. Uncredited head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa White, Sabolsky. Cover price, $5. And went on sale July 29th of 2020. Now we open at North Star's place, where he and his husband, whose name nobody seems to remember, are sitting down to have a cup of coffee. John Paul suddenly stops, looks up, and pronounces that his sister Aurora is dead. And so his next stop is the Krakoan hatchery, so he can ask the five to get busy with it a resurrecting. They lambaste him for cutting in line because, you know, they've got a lot of resurrections still on their plate, like 15.5 million of them. Makes me wonder if even any of these characters knew or cared about what we just suffered through on Genosha because of the Scarlet Witch. Probably not. Okay, Northstar continues needling until the five ask him to produce some proof. And, well, he doesn't exactly have any. He just knows that Aurora's dead. It's like uh, one of those twin things, I guess. Now, they tell him that without proof, they're not going to get to work. And, you know, that stands to reason, doesn't it? Northstar isn't sure where to even begin looking for answers, and so they point him towards Sage. Because of course they do. I think it's in Sage's contract that she must appear in like 80% of our books to suck all the air out of whatever scene she's in. And so, Northstar does just that. He visits Sage, who's just as wildly unpleasant as ever. She seems to have a, a real inferiority complex over her position on Krakoa. She's highly defensive over what her duties entail. Anywho, all she can tell him is that Aurora was last seen hanging out at the Green Lagoon a few days ago. Then she left through a gateway to Vancouver, and that's all anybody knows. So next stop, the Green Lagoon. North Star asked the Blob if he's seen Aurora, to which, yeah, he did, but he can't tell him any anything much more than he already knows. Then, at the end of the bar, Polaris pipes up. She tells Jean-Paul that he's going about this all wrong. Next, an info page with a rather cringeworthy flyer for what will eventually be X-Factor of Investigations. It comes complete with a line which reads, quote, Quit your bitchin'. Oh, how we doing, fellow edgy teens? We like this? Mm. Double page spread of creds, then our roll call. 
North Star, Polaris, Dakin or Dakin, I'll probably say it both ways, Prodigy, Prestige, iBoy, Hope, Egg, Elixir, Proteus, and Tempest. Now back to comics. Polaris and North Star are walking together with the former telling the latter that he ought to be doing certain things to find his supposedly dead sister, and that includes putting together a task force to investigate. Duh. She says they'll need to enlist the aid of some suitable and available folks to help with this research. Dakin, who just so happens to be sitting on the ground nearby, mumbles something about wanting to help, but they don't want any part of him. Poor guy. Polaris decides to make some suggestions. Prodigy has just been resurrected with his powers, and in fact, we watch him hatch right here. And I gotta wonder if Prodigy was put through the crucible in order to earn this death and repowered resurrection. You'd figure they'd mention that if that were the case, right? Another pick is Rachel, who's currently walking her warwolf puppy waiting for it to poop. The pup gets a name, too, and it's uh, pretty bad. Uh, we decided to call this warwolf Amazing Baby which is going to be so awkward to both read and say. Then we get a shot of iBoy, who's busy sticking googly eye stickers on his Crocs. Because, lol? Okay. Later, our task force has been organized, and it is Polaris, Northstar, Prodigy, and Prestige, along with Amazing Baby. Lorna suggests that they round out their team by placing an ad on... Well, Krakoan Craigslist, I guess. It's called Mutants Unmuted. I'm, I think we've heard of that before. I just can't put my finger on exactly where. And so, it doesn't take long to get our next volunteer, and duh, it's Dakin. So it seems that by hook or by crook, this dude is coming with us. Northstar tells him to go away, but he won't. And here they make sure to reference the fact that Dakin is bisexual twice in as many board balloons, because... I don't know, I guess that's all that matters? Or maybe we're pandering? Who knows? Um, here, there's some forced drama with a mutant child who hates his grandmother, but I really don't feel like recounting that scene all that much. After that, our crew begins getting down to business on the Aurora hunt. Oh, and Dakin is here because he thinks Aurora is really hot. So he's a very sexual character, don't you know? We might hear a little bit more about that on every page he's on. Uh, they talk about checking Aurora's social media to see what she might be up to, but she doesn't use any. Then our final team member arrives, and it's iBoy. He apologizes for being late, to which Dakin rightfully proclaims, and nobody cares anyway. Uh, this Dakin is growing on me a lot here. I, I'm, I'm digging this character. Um, he might just be like the, the sleeper character of this, uh, of this series for me. Okay, so how about we now finally get down to business? Our team is directed to a motel in Bellingham, Washington. They check around the room that she was staying in while Dakin heads off to flirt up the front desk clerk. You, you get his gimmick yet? You get it? You get it? Is this supposed to be parody? I, I'm sure it's supposed to be funny, but is it supposed to be like past funny into parody? Because that's the feeling I'm getting. Okay, let's go to the room here. Now, the team struggles to put two and two together until Rachel decides to remind everybody that she has chrono-skimming powers so she can actually see what Aurora was up to the last time she was here. Kind of makes the rest of the team obsolete, doesn't it? Also, why didn't Rachel just lead with that? It's like, hey, we're here. I can do this, you know. <sighs> anyway, Rachel's powers allow her to see that Aurora used a towel and hairbrush. I mean, if there's a towel and a hairbrush in Aurora's room probably stand to reason that she used them. 
Anyway, Rachel shows them to Amazing Baby, hopeful that the pup might pick up on Aurora's scent. And, well, that's exactly what happens. Now, as the pup and our team run into the parking lot, we see Dakin still flirting up the desk clerk. Well, I guess, actually, at this point, the desk clerk is now flirting him up. He gets a bit of information regarding the car Aurora was driving before excusing himself to rejoin his team. Now, they're led to a bridge which has a busted side rail where Aurora's car might have been driven off into the drink far below. Eyeboy uses his powers to try to pick out the right SUV in the water, and eventually does. There's a lot of cars in this water. Lorna then uses her powers to lift the car out of the water. And bada-bing, bada-boom, it is Aurora's car, complete with a dead Bobier inside it. Seconds later, Northstar plops his sister's corpse on the floor of the hatchery as proof of her death. <laughs> like, really? It's like, splat. Okay, she's dead. Fix her. Uh, now, Hope asks how Aurora died, to which Northstar flips the F out. Egg hops in to assure John Paul that they'll get to work ASAP. Then the rest of the team shows up to inform Northstar that they figured out what happened to Aurora. And it's a pretty convoluted tale of an anti-mutant type cutting the brakes on his own car, but having Aurora drive it, and then somehow dying himself in the uh, offing, I guess? I don't know. This is taken to the Quiet Council, where they realize that this might have never come to the surface if not for Northstar's premonition or whatever, you know, twinsy feeling he had. And so the suggestion is made to make this task force a more permanent thing. An X-Factor who can seek out missing mutants, and it is a decent idea, isn't it? The five seconds the motion, and it's put before Xavier and Magneto for final approval, which it gets pretty quickly. I figure they might know that uh, we got to bloat this uh, this line of books while we still can, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, Jean Grey and Storm also give the thumbs up, as if it matters. Uh, Storm then tells Lorna to get to work, bringing the mutants home, to which Lorna's all, hey, I'm not in charge of this team, and so she nominates Northstar for the position, which, after a moment's hesitation, Jean-Paul accepts. Now, as the council lets out, Magneto and Polaris get a little one-on-one time, and uh, Magneto's a little bit concerned that she'd shirk this responsibility, but doesn't really push the subject. Now, we follow Lorna to a Krakoan clearing where she attempts to chat up the island. Together, they create X-Factor's new digs, which is a place Dakin will name the Boneyard. The team gets comfortable in their new base, and Amazing Baby finally poops. X-Factor is then giving a housewarming present from the five in the form of a Krakoan bagel plant. Is that something Krakoa can do? Maybe. Uh, Forge and Sage are also here, the latter of whom is drinking because, of course, someone has to be drinking in this book. How's it going, fellow edgy teens? We like this? Uh, Now Forge shows off something new, something actually very, very cool. They're fleet seeds. They're these little seeds here. They kind of look like ethereal pollen but they are a way that mutants can anonymously send in their X-Factor request. I really like this idea. This is a, this is a good idea. I think this is something you can actually hinge a series on, and uh, maybe they will. Anywho, no sooner does Forge show these off than X-Factor is absolutely inundated with requests, like hundreds of them at once. We wrap up with Northstar telling his X-Factor that it's time for them to buckle down and get to work. Now, we close out the issue with a few heavily redacted info pages regarding the rules of resurrection. The only one we get a really good look at is Article 5, which refers to X-Factor Investigation's role in deducing proof of death. There are some interesting bits we can't see, like Article 7, which discusses those mutants who wish to not be resurrected, but we can't see anything other than that line. 
You know, actually, while we're here, let's just go through this page best we can, okay? There are 10 articles here. Article 1 is, as we learned in this issue, no resurrection without proof of death first. Perfectly reasonable uh, request, right? Article 2 is something regarding the order in which resurrections will occur. In other words, like cutting in line and whatnot and priorities. Uh, It's redacted, so we don't get a whole lot of it, but that is the gist. Article 3 is another one that's heavily redacted here. It's uh, about force protocol. Not sure what that's in reference to. Uh, I mean, we can joke and suggest that maybe it has something to do with the fact that, like, members of X-Force die all the time. Or maybe we can think a little bit harder and think that force suggests something along the lines of capital punishment. You know, I I really don't know. This is heavily redacted, but uh, plenty of food for thought. Article 4 is fully redacted. Can't see any of it. Article 5 is the one we covered earlier. That's X-Factor Investigations and their role in deducing proof. Article 6 mentions of Joe and Jane Doe, or John and Jane Doe, uh, maybe suggests something having to do with unidentified mutants, perhaps? You know, anonymous mutants? Yeah, Jane, Joe and, I'm sorry, John and Jane Doe mutants, I suppose. Article 7, as mentioned, is the DNR, the Do Not Resurrect. Then Articles 8, 9, and 10 are fully redacted, so... Hopefully, we'll get a little bit more information on these as we go along, if, if they even matter in the first place. But uh, very good use of an info page. I, I liked it. I liked this info page a lot. I gave a little bit of a, a mission statement for uh, what we're trying to do here. I, I liked it quite a bit. But that is X-Factor, Volume 4, Number 1. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Cable Number 2. And it feels like it's been a long time since we covered Cable here, doesn't it? That, that feels like forever ago, but we'll get right back into it next time. But now, let's talk about X-Factor number one. And, uh, you know, it's not any fault of this book, but I think I maybe, perhaps, put a bit too much hope into it. Um, I want to be clear, I didn't dislike this. I didn't dislike this at all. I know I had a little bit of fun with it in the synopsis here. I, I, at the end of the day, I thought it was mostly good. Okay, but I think I might have had higher expectations going in. I had this book pegged, and this is, again, no fault of the book. Uh, Like, it would sort of be in my own personal Dawn of X rarefied air, so to speak, alongside books like Marauders and Hellions, books that I had no expectation for that would just blow me away. Kind of an off-center sort of book, but it just turns out to be an unexpected hit, or just something that I really, really personally dig. Again, this was good. Mostly. I will say that I definitely felt like we got our $5 worth of story here. Because, you know, a lot of stuff happened here. This was a a fairly substantial issue. And, of course, this is all relative, of course, because of late we've read plenty of $5 books that did not deserve the bloated cost. This one felt like we got a little bit more than a regular issue. And so I I can allow it, the extra dollar, as if, you know, anything I say means a damn bit of anything. Let's talk about what I felt worked. First of all, and probably most importantly, I like this team. I like this team a lot. I think this is a fun assemblage of characters, and they play well off of each other. I mean, even iBoy fits here, right? I, I, we talked about iBoy, I think it was Giant Size Nightcrawler, and, and I groaned through that because I hate this character. But he worked here. He's not just a funny haha, which it's easy to have someone as silly-looking as iBoy be just the comic relief. 
Here they used his powers and they used them well. He, he was actually necessary in the position he was in. Also, it was cool seeing the five get a little bit of panel time because we're normally seeing them just as the group who resurrects and they're usually in the background of panels and they're being talked about. But here we're actually getting them with lines of dialogue. I thought that was really, really cool and definitely like long overdue. You know, I'm trying to think out of all these Dawn of X books, I mean, we're up to our 86th issue here. The five have been referred to a fair amount, but I don't think we've actually seen them, and they, they certainly haven't had dialogue in very, very many uh, issues. So it's nice seeing them and getting established with them uh, once again. Like I mentioned during the synopsis, I really like the idea of the fleet seeds. Really cool idea, and I feel like it could definitely be used as an organic way of keeping this series moving forward. It's kind of a situation where this title can become like the issue of the month sort of thing, you know, like the one and done sort of, okay, well, this is the mission we have here. And I think in a lot of situations that might feel like filler, but given what's being established here, this book can be like that and it will make sense and it won't feel like filler quite as much, or at least it has a potential not to. And I'm cool with that. And and so I'm really looking forward to what's to come here. I don't have any sort of advanced knowledge of anything that's coming down the pike for us. So, uh, yeah, sky's the limit, I guess. Now let's talk about the stuff I didn't much care for. Uh, First, the art was wildly uneven. Uh, There are some pages here that look really, really good, but also in many the characters are afflicted with, for lack of a better term, severe triangle head. These pages in particular look like like if Umberto Ramos put out a how-to-draw book and then David Baldion only read like the first five pages of it. You know, some of them are rather hard to look at. Just not, uh, not, not great. Of course, they were very, there were very good pages here as well. So just very uneven. Maybe that had to do with the, you know, the extra size of the first issue. I don't know. Gotta mention Dakin. Um... The depiction of Dakin, or Dakin, I don't know how to say this dude's name, I'm sorry. It felt, like, so forced that it was almost offensive. Um, like, I get what they're going for here, right? And uh, here's my, you know, third or fourth edgy teens reference here, but it's like, I, I guess we're all edgy teens who are totally obsessed with identity politics and can't think of anything but. But can we maybe try and flesh out his character other than hinging every single thing on his sexuality? It feels like they're doing a disservice to the character and to whatever they're trying to, whatever point they're trying to get across here. It makes me want to ask, are there any teenagers actually reading this? Who knows? Is, is it just stupid 40-year-old men like me? <laughs> Maybe. Um, finally, you know, some of the dialogue here was, I don't want to say bad, but just not what I wanted to read. That's not a fault of the book, just a personal preference sort of thing. Uh, some of it felt... A little too clever, a little too snarky. Um, you know, it goes back to a, a common complaint that I've been making of late, where it feels like it feels like we're watching a TV commercial where everybody has to be snarky and sarcastic and sassy, and uh, everything is tinged with like really, really try-hard comedy. And uh, it's not what I want to be reading in every single panel. You know, it's okay to have that on occasion, but it's just like. 
as I was dealing with the snark, it was like I was dodging anvils. It was just a, tor- a torrent of them. Um, and it wasn't the entire book. It was not the entire book. A lot of it was very good, but there were parts that were just a bit much for me. And maybe that has to do with my age. Maybe that has to do with my expectations. Again, not the fault of a book that uh, may or may not be you know, being written for me. And that's perfectly fine. But uh, for the most part... I enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to what's to come. And really, at the end of the day, you can't ask for a whole lot more than that. So X-Factor Volume 4, number one, gets a thumbs up. Thumbs up from me. Uh, there were a few things that got under my skin, but that's just going to happen. So that is pretty much everything I have to say about this issue. Um, right now, I would usually send it over to the mailbag, but the mailbag's empty. The mailbag is empty for the first time in a very long time, and... Um, I'm hoping that has more to do with the fact that Empire colon X-Men didn't inspire a whole lot of conversation rather than people just are, you know, done writing to me. But uh, I, I totally understand in either case, as a matter of fact. But uh, yeah, Empire X-Men was our last four episodes, and I don't know that that really inspired a whole lot of discussion. Those were some of my more negative episodes, which... To me, I always feel like like are the weakest episodes because uh, if you're not excited about what you're talking about, um, it shows, you know. And it's something I worry about. It's something I did worry about during those episodes. I felt like I might be too negative on them uh, to the point where I even reached out to some listeners to run my thoughts by them to see if they thought I was being too negative. So I guess we'll just chalk that one up to a loss and hope for better things to come. But uh, if anyone out there would like to write to me, please feel free. You can reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us on Facebook about anything you want at 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can hear all of the audio archive stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Just want to thank everyone for sharing your time with me today and uh, introducing the final Wave 2 Dawn of X book, X-Factor. Hope you all enjoyed it, and as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Beautiful house with a beautiful wife, and you may ask.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 87 of X-Lapsed, where, after a long, long, long time, it's Cable Day. We're going to be talking about Cable, volume 4, number 2. Now, this had a September 2020 cover date. The story is called The Five and One. Written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Phil Noto. Oh boy, the art is by Phil Noto. This is... This is quite a treat. Um, letters, VCs Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Our edits are Bisa White-Sabalski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale July 29th, 2020. I didn't know if I was going to just jump right into the comic or bore you all with the fact that uh, the wife and I just wrapped up the TV show Six Feet Under, and it's kind of stuck on me here. So I think we'll just go into the comic. If anybody wants to hear me talk about Six Feet Under, just let me know, and I, I definitely will. Uh, now, we open this issue at a suburban home in Philadelphia. Now, this is the home of a mutant couple, Stinger and Omerta. Well, Stinger is still a mutant. Omerta no longer has his powers. Now, they're arguing about whether or not they ought to upstakes and go to Krakoa. Now, Omerta, Paulie, ain't really feeling it. Stinger is just so sick of living as a mutant in human land. She claims that she keeps getting weird looks, but I really can't tell what's so weird about her other than her pointy hairstyle, which, I mean, one could imagine she could change if she wanted to, she looks fairly normal. I don't know. Anywho, she pops into their baby's room to check on him or her, and they only find an empty crib. The baby's been kidnapped. And in fact, it's uh, front-page news in the Daily Bugle, which headline reads, Mutie Cutie Stolen. I gotta ask, I thought the word mutie was supposed to be like a really, really offensive term these days. I guess not so much when it helps to pay off a rhyme. I don't know. Let's do our roll call. We got Cable, Esme Cuckoo, Mindy Cuckoo, Phoebe Cuckoo, Sophie Cuckoo, and Celeste Cuckoo, Cyclops and Emma Frost. Then, a single-page spread of credits. Hell yeah, more of this, please. Let's get back into comics, and we've got Cable. He's in a police interrogation room, chatting up a pair of Philly's finest. He asks them what they're, going, what they're all going to do about this missing child, and by saying all, he includes Cable himself in the search here. He's like, what are we all going to do? The officers are almost, like, amused by Cable. <laughs> amused and also curious about his weird, scarred eyes. But they tell him that they're going to take care of it. Now, Cable insists, claiming that a missing mutant baby is a big deal to him, to which the officers say that all missing babies are important to them. They suggest Cable just back off and let them do their jobs, but we know that ain't going to happen. We shift scenes to later on, and Cable is staking out the neighborhood by Stinger and Omerta's house. And this is where I realized that Omerta is friggin' Paulie Provenzano. You know, that dude who joined Jean Grey's Eve of Destruction interim X-Men? That were like... I want to say they were like a really, really big deal for about a second and a half back around the turn of the century. And I've actually kind of wondered whatever happened to these lesser members of the group, right? We had Paulie and uh, Wraith, I guess. Wraith was the other one. We had Sunpire, who I don't know if we would consider her a lesser one, but I don't know that we've seen much of her since then. I want to say that there was a Sunpire. Uh, This is, I don't remember if it was Sunfire's sister or cousin or some relative of Sunfire. 
Uh, I know we saw a version of her in The Exiles. Now, Stinger, we did read a sinister secret about back in the long ago, if I'm not mistaken. I want to say that she was announced as being like the first pregnant mutant in the Age of Krakoa. Which, uh, hey, I guess that one literally bared fruit. Anywho, back to the story. Cable is joined by Esme Cuckoo. Now, Cable's kind of dating all five of them, which was alluded to back in Wolverine number 3 when the Cuckoos were flirting up Quentin Choir to get him on board with the Pale Girl mission. One of the Cuckoos, I don't remember which one, told Wolverine, hey, you gotta help us out, we want Cable. So I guess they got Cable. Anywho, Esme is helping by scanning the neighborhood for clues, but she stops to make out with Nate for a bit. Philly's finest drive by as they're making out, and they see this, and they give Cable a big ol' sarcastic thumbs up for a job well done. Esme asks Cable if he's scared that the cuckoos are constantly judging him. He says, nah. But then we jump to a page where the other four cuckoos are pretty much watching the scene play out, and they're having themselves a collected laugh at Cable's, I don't know, naivete, maybe? It's a cute scene. I will definitely give it that. Back to reality. Esme reveals that uh, they might, she might have found something in her scan. She's finding memories of people in robes and a screaming baby. Now, Cable asserts that this must be the Order of X, one of those weirdo mutant cults that popped up recently. Esme goes into diamond-hard mode and busts through this neighbor's house door, which, I don't know, feels a little bit like overkill, right? I mean, they could probably just open the door. Cable follows her inside and draws his Light of Galador sword just in case there's anything creeping behind there. Now, it turns out that drawing the sword alerts those three space knights from last issue to Cable, and more importantly, the light of Galador's location. And so they descend upon Philadelphia, and before we know it, they're crashing through the roof of this house that Cable and Esme are currently trespassing in. The space knights demand Cable hand over the sword, but, of course, he refuses. They tussle for a bit before Cable is overwhelmed and, uh, well, gets blasted directly in the back, and so he is KO'd. The Space Knights reclaim the blade and decide to take Nate and Esme with them wherever they're going for good measure. Next scene, Cyclops is now in the interrogation room chatting up Philly's finest. He tells them that no matter what they need, they can count on the X-Men. They'll help them as best they can. They're all, yeah, we know that. We already talked to your son with the weird eye to which Cyclops is not surprised. The officers tell him that, hey, we got it under control, and then they suggest that Scott get himself a cheesesteak for the road and get back to his island. And so, we next see Cyclops back in Krakoa, cheesesteak in hand. Anyone listening ever have a real Philly cheesesteak? Probably, right? I mean, a lot of people do. I'd never be able to get one, because I have like a real problem with places that give you crap over the way you order things. Like, they have their own lingo, and if you don't get it exactly right, they talk to you like you're an idiot. Because, honestly, I'm a guy who still orders the large anytime I drive through a Starbucks. Which doesn't get me quite as much guff as it used to back in the long ago. I remember years ago when you'd order a large, they'd like look at you like you had three heads and that you were just the most uncultured of the uncultured. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I'm also a guy who orders... If I ever order a hot dog, I order it with ketchup, which is apparently an affront to God and humanity. I figure I'm just trying to give these people money. Just let me order the things I want the way I want to. Anywho, uh, Scott is joined by Emma, who's wearing some almost bell-bottomy pants here. Now, she wants to talk about Cable dating her girls. She doesn't want any of them to wind up with a broken heart over, you know, Scott's son. 
besides Esme, because apparently Esme deserves to be heartbroken. I, I think that's that's kind of funny. I don't know why, but it's kind of funny. Scott Scott insists that he'll talk to his son about all of this stuff. From here, we jump to an info page, and it's a pair of emails from Philly's finest. We get names for these two fellas. It's Molina and DiStefano. Now, the first one talks about getting a warrant to check out the house that Cable and Esme were hanging out in front of. The second email laments the fact that, well, that house done got blowed up. But what can they do from here? Well, we'll find out another time, because right now we jump to another info page, and this one's talking about The Hunt. And it's entry 002, which takes us back to another place and another time, where we rejoin Old Man Cable, who was still wandering through a barren wasteland. Well, he's not quite wandering at the moment. He's actually sitting on a mechanical animal, which sort of looks like a miniature at-at from Star Wars. Is that even how you say that? Is it AT-ATs or are they at-ats? I don't know much Star Wars, so I assume you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, he's being assisted by some beast man who's worried that his boss will see him helping Cable and react quite poorly to that. And so for his troubles, Cable shoots him directly in the face, which is pretty hardcore. Cable then rides his weird at-at gimmick to a cliff where he takes a gander over the side with his binoculars and he sees a rather large skyscraper. He comments to himself that he's seen less obvious traps and we're out of here. Next episode, welcome to the Double Digits X-Men Volume 5, which means we'll finally be able to do our Dawn of X Wave 1 number 10 power rankings. That is, if I don't forget, like I did with our Wave 2 number 1s, but we'll get to those in just a little bit. Also, I hope uh, I don't forget what happened in all the rest of the number 10s. As always, we will endeavor to do our best. But first, let's talk about this very fun issue of Cable. Very, very fun, and boy, it just like flew by, didn't it? Um, an issue like this is like an absolute dream for a synopsizer, right? Because the flow is wonderful. But it's a tough one for an analyzer, because it just happens so fast. You know, the synopsis pretty much writes itself when the story flow is just as natural and organic and just plain good as this is. It's an absolute dream. But it is tough coming up with things to say about it, other than the fact that I really, really enjoyed it. You know what I mean? I suppose an angle that we can go to is uh, a well-trodden one for this program. We talk a fair amount about the attempts at comedy in these Dawn of X books, right? I mean, that's perfectly clear. I'm not a terribly creative guy, so I go back to the same wells over and over again. In fact, we actually talk a fair amount about the fact that we talk a fair amount about comedy, which I apologize if that becomes grating. But let's talk about why, to me, that the comedic elements work so well in a book like this, rather than in, well, pretty much the rest of the line, or at least 90% of the line. And I think what it comes down to is basically what I just said. This book has comedic elements, right? But it's not trying so hard to be funny. With most of the other attempts in this line, there's a real try-hard feel, right? Like, the goal going into a scene is, okay, guys, this is where we make the reader laugh. And I don't get that feeling here in Cable. And in fairness, I don't find it laugh-out-loud funny, but the general tone of humor and lightness is prevalent, and it makes the scenes feel more real, 
more welcoming, and just plain more satisfying to experience. I mean, let's look at the cuckoo's screwing with cable, for example. Here's a bit where cable is basically using the cuckoos, right? He's taking them on missions where they'll be the most useful, he's making out with them, not really taking into consideration that one of them, or some of them, or all of them, might actually be falling for him. And then we turn the page and we find out that the cuckoos are basically using Nate as a test subject of sorts here. But it doesn't outright discount whether or not there are any actual true feelings going on between the six of them. There's subtlety here. In most other books, that scene would have been the end of a story beat. Whereas here, it just adds an unexpected lighter element to this bizarre love heptagon, right? It's just extra. Scott and Emma's scene. Another one actually quite humorous. Not only for the fact that Scott was holding a giant sandwich, which they didn't draw a whole lot of attention to. I feel like other writers would have made the entire scene about the fact that Cyclops is holding a gigantic cheesesteak, right? Like, get it? Get it? He's holding a cheesesteak. Isn't that funny? Well, no, not in and of itself, but here, it was just something that was in the scene, but not dwelled upon. Which made it work. It made it humorous. Uh, Even taken a step further into the conversation between Scott and Emma. Very well done. I don't know why Emma has it in her head that Esme needs to have her heart broken. And it really doesn't matter. Because it's weird, it's kind of quirky, and and it's funny. We don't need it explained to death. Which, again, I feel like other writers would have done. Here, we get just enough to be like, huh? And then we move on, which is the way it should be. Um, Philadelphia's finest here, our officers, they were handled quite well, and again, with subtlety. They weren't portrayed as mutant haters. They weren't even portrayed as being mutant-phobic or intimidated by the fact that there are mutants stomping around their beat. Instead, they took it as it was, and they were actually kind of amused by them. Sure, they don't need Cable or Cyclops in their way, but this was like a more more of a fun adversarial approach than the standard, you know, humans are awful and nobody understands the mutant sort of deal that we're accustomed to getting in these books. So yeah, this is really good stuff here. The Space Knight stuff? Well, my personal jury is still kind of out on them. I love the idea of tying in the lore, but in practice, Rom and his ilk have never really done anything to move my needle. I will say I'm totally on board, though, and I'm excitedly optimistic that this might change my mind. Uh, The old man cable stuff is really interesting. Um, To me, anyway. I mean, we get, what, like three pages? But I really want to know what's going on here. Is this the real cable? Is this the real cable from present day, just time displaced? Is this just a retelling of an old pre-extermination era adventure? The answer to that is, I don't care what it is, I just want more of it. It's fun. It's interesting. It's mysterious. It's... Really well done. Speaking of well done, do we even need to comment on the art? Yeah, probably, right? It's it's amazing stuff. I mean, it's Phil Noto, so you probably already know that, but honestly, this is a hell of a good-looking book. I didn't even mind that the fact that there were like three full-page spreads in it, simply because they looked so damn wonderful. Really, really gorgeous art here. I mean, this is... This is up there with, uh, you know, Rod Reese on New Mutants. Just fantastic art that I can barely wrap my head around it being quite this good. Overall, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Cable <laughs> is more than worth your time. I mean, who'd have thunk it? Um, this might be the best book with Cable branding on it. 
since that Weinberg run back, God, before the turn of the century. I can't think of anything that's been quite that good, quite this good since then. Really, really good. Really worth your time. Uh, whether you're cable-averse or a fan of cables, I think you'll get something out of this book. This is a really good book, and it's a really good-looking book, which helps things as well. So that's all I got to say about Cable Volume 4, number 2. But since I forgot to do it last episode, let us go to our Dawn of X Wave 2, number 1 power rankings. Now we have four books from Dawn, Dawn of X Wave 2, and let's rank them. The top three are very, very close. This is a uh, this is a really, really good wave of books here. One of them falls kind of far behind, but the the top three are very, very close. And depending on whichever one I read most recently, it might just you know be the one that I get. I have it so my best book of the Dawn of X Wave two number ones is Hellions number one, followed by Cable number one. Followed by X Factor number one, and then of course we have Wolverine number one, which really didn't do a whole heck of a lot for me. The other three, wonderful, wonderful books. Um, a real tough decision to see who'd get number one here, but uh, Hellions just eked it out. Uh, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on the uh, Wave Two number ones. Uh, if you've read all four of them, please, please feel free to let me know. But uh, with that said, let's hop into the mailbag. We're going to start with Evan, who's talking about uh, Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed. He says, Enjoying reading along with Phoenix Resurrection. I still feel like the first couple of issues have me in a holding pattern, but maybe that's because I read some things that spoiled a little bit of it for me. It's still enjoyable, though. I was thinking the Jean Grey we're seeing is Teen Jean from the all-new, all-different, sometimes blue X-Men. The events, I think, spun out of the Jean Grey solo series that ran 11 issues. When I went back to refresh my memory, I realized that I never finished the last two issues, so that's what I'm going to do before issue three. And that's not something I even thought about. I never even thought that the gene we're seeing at the Elsewhere Diner, or just in the Elsewhere in general, might not be our gene, or prime gene. So that is very, very interesting. And uh, now it has me asking a whole bunch of questions here, and uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, if we do find out that this is Teen Gene, and then the series just ends with real Gene just, like, you know, burning back in on the Phoenix or something, I don't know how I'll feel about that. But, uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's very, very interesting food for thought, though. Evan continues by explaining a little bit about what the uh, Gene Grey, uh, I guess it would be just a maxi series, was. He says, the series was based on young Jean having a vision that the Phoenix was returning and her preparing for it by seeking training from previous hosts and other Marvel characters such as Psylocke and even Thor. It was a pretty cool series and one of the few times I've read Jean as the star and not more of a supporting character, or at least sharing the spotlight. And that sounds pretty interesting. I I have a couple of those issues kicking around in my uh, collection. I I haven't really prioritized filling that run in, though, but... I'm definitely considering it. I'm definitely considering it. I just had such an aversion to the teen characters around the time that I decided to leave the X-Books because the teen characters, the teen original five, were a big part of why I walked away. Not that I didn't like them there in the first place. I just didn't like the voices they were being given. Uh, the voices, it was like I was it was like I was watching current year, like Degrassi Junior High. It was like so much snark, so much just... I'm the most charming person in the room, and it really just turned me off. Didn't want to hear it, didn't want to see it, and uh, 
And I've tried the uh, the Colin Bun run a few times, and uh, we still might again for uh, for recording purposes. But uh, it throws me off every time. I always go into it with like the best of intentions, like I'm gonna get through it this time. And no, it never happens because these the teen X Men are just so damn annoying. So maybe I don't know who wrote the uh, the Jean Grey mini or maxi series, but uh, I'd be interested in finding out and seeing if maybe uh, the character can win me over. After all, right? It's definitely a, a damn good premise for a, for a series, isn't it? Uh, especially if it leads into uh, Phoenix Resurrection. So that's really really cool. Now Evan closes out by uh, by trying something out here. He says, "Let me try one. Until you give twelve out of ten stars to the Shi'ar Otherworld War maxi series and tie-ins, make mine X lapsed. You never know. Stranger things have happened, right? <laughs> but thank you so much for writing in and uh, filling us in on some of the uh, more recent Jean Grey history. Next, we have a message from Mark Green Lantern HG discussing Empire. He says, just like I said." Well, at least it's over. <laughs> don't get me wrong, I like a good zombie story, but I don't even know what to make of this. Still, I'm here, Chris. Like I said, I'm in till the end. <laughs> great episode, and keep up the great work. So thank you, Mark, for sticking around here. I know Empire must have been a real tough one to get through, these episodes, because I try as I may to stay positive and at least bring something a little bit lighter to these, even books that I don't care for, I was at a loss uh, for for the Empire issues. They they hit me in just the wrong spot. So it was. I apologize if I came across as way too negative on those. Um, something that I want to say is uh, I don't think any creator gets up in the morning and says I'm going to write a horrible comic book today. And I, I doubt any of the people involved in Empire X Men did say that to themselves. But uh, what we got, I don't know. There, there was no heart in that story. And uh, it felt like exactly what it was, which was a cash-in. But uh, like you said, at least it's over. And, uh, well, actually, we're going to be talking more Empire next episode, aren't we? Because of uh, the X-Men Volume 5 tie-in. Huh. Well, I, I, let's, hope that, uh, let's hope that that one has a little bit more heart than the miniseries, right? We'll keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. But uh, thank you so much. <laughs> For writing in and, and for sticking with the show Even in these uh, these leaner times Of, uh, of Empire colon X-Men Mark, thank you so much Now if anyone else would like to write in And uh, say hello or talk about anything you want You can reach me on Twitter At Ace Comics or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com You can find blog posts and show notes Over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com There's also xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com We've got a Facebook group 90s X-Men on Facebook and you can hear all the noise at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. A bit of a shorter show, but uh, a heck of an issue that I give a very high recommendation to. If you're not reading cable and you're cable curious, definitely do yourself a favor and check it out. But uh, thank you all so, so much for hanging out and sharing your time with me today. And uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 102 of x Labs, and uh, we're back to business as usual here. We're past the milestone. We're past that weird little pit stop into Deadpool's world. We're back with the regular Dawn of X books here, and today we're going to be discussing the fourth issue of Hellions. We're going to wrap up, I believe we're going to be wrapping up that first arc here. It does seem like it, it does tidally tie up, so... Let's get right into it. Hellions number four had a November 2020 cover date. Stories called Love Bleeds, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors by David Curiel. Letters, VCs Ariana Marr. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa Amaro White, Basso Sapolsky. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale September 16th of 2020. Now we start off with, uh, well... Our customary Nightcrawler quote, which I uh, customarily glaze over. Then, into the comics, and we are deep underground. We're below the home for foundlings, where Maddie has Alex strapped to a wall with a glowing pentagram-like symbol etched on it. Now, Madeline is planning on summoning all the demons through this sigil, symbol, whatever it is, and it looks as though poor Alex is going to serve as her willing bait. Like the demons are going to... Eat him or whatever Maybe not eat him But he's going to be sacrificed And he's aware of that And he's kind of cool with that So that's where we're at Double page spread of creds Followed by our roll call And it's a mouthful Havoc, the orphan maker Nanny, wild child, Psylocke Empath, Grey Crow, Metal Empire Arclight, Riptide, Harpoon Blockbuster, and Scrambler And I don't think we'll be seeing Empath I don't know why he gets a little bo- a little box here But what are you going to do? Now back topside or at least at ground level, Arclight is about to eat Grey Crow. That's where we left them off last issue. Now off to the side, some some more legacy marauders are trying to crack Nanny's egg, and uh, that's not a euphemism. They finally manage to get through when Wildchild pounces, followed by Psylocke, who is shoving her psychic blade into everything that moves, and uh, that's not a euphemism either. Harpoon then harpoons Wildchild, and... Uh, Though the poor freak is impaled, like this thing goes right through him, he doesn't die. Psylocke then yoinks the harpoon from Kyle's gut and throws it in Grey Crow's direction. Now he catches it just in the nick of time and frees himself from his upside-down bonds. Suddenly, they, the Hellions and the Marauders here, they hear a great rumbling. Maddie is about to make contact with the other side. Arclight sort of comes around to her senses here. Uh, she's still a putrefying zombie, but... She's no longer completely under Madeline's control. You see, at this point, since Maddie is summoning all these demons, her influence is spread far too thin. 
Grey Crow then suggests that Psylocke and the rest get down to the sub-basement, or whatever the hell it is, to stop Priya, while he brings his old teammates home. And he even gives Psylocke directions on how to access that sub-basement or wherever area. And with that, Psylocke calls the Hellions to formation and they head off. And it's worth noting here, she actually calls them the Hellions. Not sure if this is the first time that this crew was actually being referred to in story as the Hellions. I feel like we maybe should have seen a team name picking scene play out. And, you know, maybe we didn't. I just glazed over it. I don't know. Okay, so the Hellions scramble off, leaving Grey Crow with his old pals. And over the course of a page, he blows their brains out. We jump back to Psylocke and company. Uh, they follow Grey Crow's directions and wind up completely out of position. It's almost as though he lied to them probably because he did. Now they find themselves in an old lab which stinks of death. Nanny goes rummaging through some garbage receptacles and finds a whole load of discarded mutant bodies. So it looks like Mr. Sinister just threw away the creations he didn't like, which, well, that displeases Nanny greatly. Meanwhile, back underground, Maddie talks at Alex for a bit uh, while the demons continue making their way through. Like, they're literally coming through that symbol on the wall and they're clinging onto Alex's body. They're just grabbing bits and pieces of his torso. Wherever they can find something to hold, they're doing it. She asks what happened to Alex and uh, why is his mind so wounded? She posits initially that it's all her fault. This is all her doing. But then she suggests that maybe there's another who screwed him up so bad, but we don't get any answers here because, before Alex can, Madeline is shot through the heart, and Grey Crow's to blame. And, and I'm not going to sing the rest of it. Now, as Maddie lay dying, Alex comes down from the wall. The ceremony is broken, so the demons, you know, hands and all, they're gone. And the world is saved, I guess, for now. Now, Madeline asks that Alex remember her to tell people that she existed, that she was a real girl. And after mending Alex's bloody gob, remember he did cut his mouth open last issue, poor Madeline passes away. And it's at this point that Havoc, well, he completely loses it. He goes uh, ape-defecate here. I mean, he goes nuts. He unleashes all of his power here. The Hellions managed to escape from the home for foundlings just in the nick of time because Alex Summers done blew the whole damn thing to pieces. After the fact, Havoc actually he, he pulls a Steve Urkel with a literal, did I do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, Wildchild comments that, hey, maybe the Quiet Council will write and everyone here is completely nuts. And the team laughs and laughs and laughs and laughs. It's very, very weird, but it works. From here, we go to an info page, and it's a report on the Hellions' first outing. Really, really awesome use of an info page, because it's an actual report, right? It's something that you could see existing in the Hox Pox Docs world. There's a synopsis, a metric on the therapeutic value of the endeavor. I mean, this is a really cool use of the info page gimmick. We also get some of the fallout included in this report. The legacy marauders are dead. And the Quiet Council will discuss whether or not resurrection will be explored for them. Madeline Pryor is also dead. Now, here's where it gets a little sticky. I mean, she's not human. She's sort of a mutant. But she's also a clone. Now, the Quiet Council are going to have to confer to, uh, well, basically define and categorize exactly what Madeline is. Or, or was. And thankfully, we're not going to have to wait long for a ruling on either case. 
Now we resume comics content on the beach, where Grey Crow is lounging, kind of like how we found him back in issue one. Now he's joined by Psylocke and Wildchild, and they learn that the he learns that the Council have approved resurrection for the Legacy Marauders. But they're not going to be prioritized, right? They're not going to be immediate. They'll just be back whenever they can get to them. No big deal. Now they sit and they watch the sunset together, or maybe it's the sunrise, I don't know. Uh, maybe we're in for some romantic tension between Grey Crow and, and Psylocke here. They do, they have shared a few telling glances throughout this adventure, so maybe there's going to be a, a little bit of a fire to that smoke. We then shift scenes to Bar Sinister. Alex, he's met by his brother Scott. The Quiet Council have made a ruling on the Maddie situation, and, well, she's a complication. She is a complication. Scott says that he tried to get them to understand, but when all the pieces fell into place, the council gave Maddie the big thumbs down. He apologizes as Alex weeps. Alex yells that Madeline was a real person. Scott apologizes again. It's all he can do, and he walks away. Now, Mr. Sinister watched this scene play out, and, uh, well, the, the creepy pervert really seemed to enjoy it. He, Sinister, is then approached by Nanny, who again really freaks him out. And yeah, I, I chuckled at this again. I, I mean, I, I must be an easy mark for Nanny and Sinister. I mean, they, they, there could be 20 full pages of Sinister just being repeatedly creeped out by Nanny, and I, I'd probably enjoy the hell out of it. So far, so good. I mean, not really, really funny stuff. Anyway, she confronts him on all those discarded bodies back in Nebraska and promises that Sinister will be punished for his misdeeds. He doesn't care for that one bit. But uh, that's all we've got for today. That's the end of Hellions number four. Now, the next issue of Hellions will be part of the X of Tens crossover mass event. And the next episode of this program is going to be Marauders number 12. But let's talk about this issue. Well, to for starters here, this is... Just another very, very strong issue of Hellions here. One of the, you know, one of the several surprises from uh, Dawn of X Wave 2 here. Loved this issue, and the thing I get stuck on with this issue is pretty much the same, the same takeaway I had from the previous issue here, and it's all Madeline Pryor based here. I don't know if it's just something that resonates in me personally, but the way they treated Madeline here really got to me. It really got to me here. Last issue, we had her talking about being a... Was it a nothing person or a non-person? However they worded it, it was perfect. Here, as she lay dying, all she's concerned about is whether or not she'll be remembered. Doesn't seem terribly villainous. Then again, you know, the way she went about it is completely villainous, but... It's so weird when you try to, like... When you think of it as a means to an end here. Last issue, she talked about inciting uh, pain as a way of making it so she's left a mark, right? Everybody knows that she existed because she caused them great pain. And even here, with Alex, she's talking about how she caused him great pain and great muddling in his mind. But right before she gets shot... She questions whether or not that was really the case. She's like, wait, no, maybe it was someone else who did this to you. And in that moment, right before she's shot and dies, I wonder if, and I mean, I'm projecting onto 
in a fictitious char- a fictional character who is also dead, but I wonder if she felt like she existed a little bit less with that revelation that maybe Alex's problems aren't all due to her. And it's weird that that was like her last thought. Her final thought before she was dying is that maybe someone else messed him up. Maybe someone else inflicted pain on him, so what then does that mean about my own existence? And, you know, I might just be reading way too much into this. I might just be a little too precious. I don't know. But that really, really raised the tragedy of this scene. And as she dies and says, uh, please, tell, tell people I existed. Tell people I was a real girl. I mean, it's heartbreaking in a way, in, in many ways. It's uh, very, very strong. Um, maybe it's just the older I get. Um, you start to think about stuff like that. You start to think about legacy. You start to think about what's going to happen when you're not here anymore. Is anyone going to remember? Because if they don't, did you exist? Right? I mean, I'm, I'm being way too precious right now while we're talking about a book called Hellions, right? Um, but it's, it's very sobering to consider. Um, I think a lot of us have had losses this year, this past year, and this isn't going to be another 2020, am I right, sort of thing. This is just real life. We lose people. And you wonder, like, people live on only in your memories. And there's comfort in that while you're the one remembering someone or something that you lost, but then... You don't have any control over it when it's you. So Madeline here pleading with Alex, you know, please remember that I existed. Remember that I was real. Wound up hitting me where I live, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Um, Legacy, for lack of a better term to use, has been weighing on my mind quite a bit. Um, and, And it does a lot upon, you know, entering a new year, because I think that's where you just start to reflect, and uh, that's not always a good thing, right? Um, So you wonder about legacy. You wonder about just take a year of your life. And uh, last year is probably a really good example. Did you exist that year? Did I exist that year? I don't know. I mean, it's something to think about. It's something to malaise over if we pretend we're all... uh, you know, high school freshmen taking creative writing classes or something. It's really uh, something we can wrap our minds around. But whatever it was, uh, this scene with Madeline really, uh, really got to me. And how it led to the Quiet Council having to pass a ruling on whether or not Madeline Pryor was real. I mean, that is some rough stuff here. And, you know, it's funny. Um, I was going to complain that we didn't get to see that scene. You know, it's like, I wish we would have seen the Quiet Council confer and uh, debate whether or not Madeline Pryor was real enough to warrant a resurrection. But, you know, I'm glad we didn't get it. I'm really glad we didn't get it because I don't want to know who voted which way. I don't want to know any of that stuff. I, I, I like the way that it was, that it's being kept nebulous here. And it's just a ruling. And it's, uh, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know that I agree with it because I feel like just having her want to be remembered makes her 
human enough to warrant a resurrection under these, you know, fantastical circumstances, of course. And to have Alex there, uh, the last person to speak with her, the last person to see her, the last person, for, for all intents and purposes, the last person to love her, sit there powerless while people far above his pay grade make a decision People who know her far less than he ever did make the decision to decline, to uh, reject her resurrection, because she's a complication. And we don't know what do we classify a clone as. It's pretty uh, pretty hard-hitting and pretty sobering stuff. Uh, and it was just so well done. So very well done. I mean, juxtapose that with... The page right before the Alex and Scott scene where we find out that the legacy marauders are being brought back to life. When they were the ones responsible for the mutant massacre. I mean, they have all these atrocities uh, on, below, you know, under, their, under their belts here. And yeah, the Quiet Council's like, sure, why not? Very strange stuff here. A lot of food for thought and it was just so well done. Really, really was. Um, if you're not reading Hellions and you're just listening along with this program, um, well, first, thank you. <laughs> and uh, also, maybe consider it. Maybe consider giving Hellions a shot here. It's it's a weird one. It's a very weird one. I never would have expected it to be um, the way it is. I would have never expected it to be a highlight. Um, and here we are. It's really good stuff, and I highly recommend checking it out if you're not already. This was a great four-issue arc. Um, didn't feel like a whole lot of filler in here. Everything kind of meant something. So I don't think you can go wrong with these first four issues of Hellions. Uh, if you're Hellions curious, I highly recommend you give it a shot. But uh, I think that's all we got to say about the issue itself. I loved it. I think you would, too. So uh, check it out if you'd like. Let's hop into the mailbag, though, where we have a couple of uh, X-Lapsed 100 messages, and then we have a couple of our normal mailbag fare here. So let's start off with a letter from Andrew Franklin regarding X-Lapsed 100. He says, congrats on reaching uh, episode 100. It's hard to believe it's been 100 days since the start of X-Lapsed. It feels like both years ago and only yesterday. Well, actually, it's been a little longer than that, because uh, while there has been a new show here every day for... Long, long time. X-Lapsed Prime has not been every single day. We've been taking the weekends off to do some Claremont to Claremont and some uh, some of our Sunday specials. So, But yes, every day there's been something new here. And yes, it does feel like both yesterday and a long, long time ago. <laughs> Andrew continues. Having this show to look forward to has really helped get me through this crazy, stressful time. And without it, there's no way I'd be reading X-Men comics again. This is an exciting time in X-History, but it's X-Lapse that makes it really special. You sharing your journey through these books with us, and including the listeners in these discussions, has been a great gift. And, uh, thank you. I mean, that, that's awesome. Thank you. And the discussions that everyone has taken part in has been, it's been a real gift to me as well. Uh, there's no way I'd still be doing this. Uh, especially, certainly not at the... Prolificy that we're doing it But uh, it means the world to me That people are following Reaching out Just it, we're, we're all in this together It's so awesome So awesome Andrew continues 100 episodes in 100 days is a big feat So congratulations on the achievement And thanks for all your great work 
And until the Milestone 200th episode with 10 variant covers, make my next lapse. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I often say that, you know, podcasting isn't something that I'm proud of because it's just something that I do. But uh, I got to say, doing doing 100 episodes of a solo podcast is something I never thought I'd be able to do. Um I never thought, for a little while there, I never thought I'd be able to do a single solo episode of a podcast ever again. I'd uh, grown very codependent and very reliant on other people. So the the fact that I was able to get just through Hoxpox by myself was, I don't know, just something I never thought I'd be able to do again. So to hit the triple digits of a solo show, that's... Uh, that's pretty cool stuff, and I'm very, very happy that I'm, I've been able to do it here. And uh, regarding the variant covers, there were actually two variant covers for the uh, for X-Lapse 100 here. I did a, a little weird little hologram of Professor X, like uh, from the Fatal Attractions comics back in the day. Did a, a die cut so you could see my script right inside there, right below the X. Foil enhanced. Oh, man, just tons of stuff there. And then the other variant cover was just a... Like a collage of every cover of X-Lapse. So a hundred covers on one cover. And, uh, yeah, I had fun doing those. I don't think anybody cared about them, but I had a lot of fun making them. It's, uh, it's keeping me up to, uh, uh on my toes in as far as, uh, image manipulation. And it's, uh, it was a lot of fun. But thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, next, Al Sedano writes in. He says, sorry I missed getting this in for episode 100, but I still wanted to offer my congratulations. I checked, and it's only been 134 days since the first episode dropped on September 1st. It's mind-boggling how much you've done since then. I can't think of another comics podcast who has done anything like this except for Comics Geek Speak founder Peter Rios on his solo show, The Daily Rios. As far as I'm concerned, that puts you two in a class by yourself. You keep excellent company, my friend. Well, thank you, thank you. And, uh, yes, Peter Rios is, uh... He's one of the originals, isn't he? He's been around the block a time or two. And uh, I've actually talked to him a little bit uh, about maybe doing something for uh, from Claremont to Claremont. And uh, he was fairly receptive. I think he'll be more likely to listen to From Claremont to Claremont now that they're in segment form rather than just sending him a 13-hour show and saying, Hey, listen to this, please. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit more about that as we go. Um I remember the first time I heard Peter Rios, I, I was not familiar with Comics Geek Speak. Um, I came into comics podcasting through the X-Men. I came in through a show called The Uncanny X-Cast, which was a really, really good show. I don't know that they're still making shows anymore. I'm so out of the loop in as far as what's current in comics podcasting. But uh, they were what brought me in. They were what... Uh, made me buy a little speaker for my work tr my work van. I had a, an ancient work van when I was repairing windshields that, you know, you couldn't just sync your phone up to. And it was, you know, it was not a smart van. It was old. And uh, I remember getting one of those, one of those cassette tapes that you would hook into like the, like the earphone bit of your phone. And then you'd put this cassette tape into the cassette deck of the vehicle and you'd put it on like a certain a certain station on the radio and it would play whatever that was and it worked awful <laughs> i mean it was the worst connection i could barely make anything out so i stopped it like a 
truck stop and I bought this little accordion speaker that would sit in my uh, cup holder. And that's how I listened to podcasts back in 2011 or so. And uh, the Uncanny X-Cast was like my show of choice. And Peter Rios would stop by there every so often to chat with the guys. And it was always a good time. So to be uh, to be compared to one of the originals in any way, that's, that's a huge honor. And I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Al. Uh, next, we're going to go to Damien. And he's talking about X-Force number 11. He says, I read this issue on New Year's Eve and listened to the episode on New Year's Day, and in between I forgot every element of the story. I'm not a drinker, so it's not like I'm listening with a hangover. It just left very little impression with me. What did stick with me is the fact that the description of the issue on Marvel Unlimited refers to X-Force as the mutant CIA. I think we might have an explanation of why the Russians are the villains of this book. Percy is not an expert on subtlety. He is clearly trying to reflect the real world, and he therefore decided that Russia is the biggest villain on the world stage. He may not be wrong, but he might have come up with a subtler and better story if he had used the international power struggle between Russia, China, America, and the EU, and how they could all be jockeying for position with a new nation. House of X number one even set it all up. I don't believe that Russia would take a purely antagonistic position to Krakoa in a way of a comic book supervillain. There would be different responses on different levels, always seeking to increase Russia's power in the world. 100% agreed. 100% agreed here. Um, I think whether we like it or not, Russia will be our villain, (laughs) no matter what. But, I mean, like, we're supposed to see Russia as, like, mustache-twirling villains. Like, no subtlety here. There's no jockeying. There's no attempt at diplomatic... Um, you know, power grabs It's all, we're going to make giant robots We're going to make an island of our own We're going to inject people with this We're going to do that We're going to attack you here We're going to block off your gates They're villains And it's just so very weird And like you said, Percy Not an expert on subtlety (laughs) Damien continues Ultimately, I think Russia was chosen to be villainous In order to give a real-world parallel To the events of X-Force 12 Which you haven't gotten to yet They want to make a comparison between the CIA and U.S. government and the mutant CIA, so they need a rogue state in the story. By the way, it's taking all my self-control not to add an expletive every time I reference the mutant CIA, because it's such a stupid and juvenile reference. It feels very, look at me, my writing is deep, which just gets me angry. Again, that's kind of Percy in it. Um, (laughs) He will never not remind us that uh, he is writing very, very deep stuff here. Uh, personally, I don't, I don't pay attention to the real world news, so I, um, yeah, I know the, the wide, you know, the inch deep mile wide on a lot of stuff, but real world news just bums me out, so I, I like my, I like my news to be as fake as possible, which, you know, takes place in, in the pages of comics, so I am willfully ignorant of a lot of real world situations, it just makes me... There was a time where I wasn't, and I was a lot angrier. So, it's just nicer not to uh, not to know things. <laughs> People can call me ignorant, but uh, it's better to be ignorant and happy than knowledgeable and uh, angry. Especially since I don't have any control over anything anyway. I got no power. <laughs> I'm just an idiot with a microphone. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Why is this labeled an X of Tens lead-in? I've read all of X of Tens, and I see no connection to this issue. 
The only possible way this links to X of Tens is by getting a guest artist in so Kassara can draw lots of the crossover. I hope that label was put on the book by marketing with no input by editorial as it is a lie. Now, I thought that this was an X of Tens tie-in because of the Cerebro Sword. If I'm remembering the right issue, it's been a little while, but... I think this is where the Cerebro Sword got into Mikhail's, Mikhail Rasputin's hands. Then again, I don't even know if the Cerebro Sword's going to play into Exitens. So that was my takeaway from the branding, if I'm, if I'm remembering the correct issue. I apologize if I'm not. But that's why I thought that was uh, branded as a, uh, not a prelude. Well, this is the path to Exitens, but I guess that'll uh, remain to be seen. Uh, I want to thank you so much for writing in, Damien. Thank you. Next up, Evan Bevins is talking about Wolverine number three. He says, I wanted to like this issue more than I did. It felt like there were good pieces like the Pale Girl, Bannister, and Wolverine having a plan, Kid Omega. The Beast's musings about the Pale Girl were interesting until the Professor suddenly realized he could no longer detect Russia. Huh? I'm not the most observant guy, but that's a pretty big thing to miss. The idea of Russia building its own alternative mutant society is intriguing, but I'm with you. Why does it always have to be Russia? Also, apparently the fine print doesn't read, Cut no man in half. Uh, I don't mind the repetitive monologue as much, but it was like that and Hanging with Bannister were the only things that made this a Wolverine book instead of an X-Force issue. Totally, totally. And yes, another another Russia book, another Percy story with Russia as the villains. Benjamin Percy, master of subtlety, right? Um... I think Damien hit it on the head here with why it always has to be Russia, because it always has to be Russia. <laughs> I gotta wonder, I mean, is there anybody listening to the show who lives in Russia, or is from Russia, or has any Russian relatives? I mean, how do you feel about this? I'd really like to know, because they're, they're jobbing Russia out pretty bad here. I mean, boy, oh boy. Um, now, yes, this does also feel very much like an X-Force story. Uh, it's a lot of the Wolverine issues so far, outs, the first three, we'll say, the first three issues, um, this Jeff Bannister story, it could be an arc in X-Force. It maybe should have been an arc in X-Force just with a focus on Wolverine. They, they used to be able to do that kind of thing, just have a focus on a character without having to spin off a whole ongoing series about said character. Uh, the... Issues 4 and 5 of Wolverine are definitely more Wolverine-specific, definitely feel more like a solo Wolverine title, but those first three, I mean, they could have been X-Force issues. One of them could have been a Marauders issue. Out of the four Dawn of X Wave 2 books, Wolverine definitely feels like the one that is bloat, you know? Um, X-Factor might not be my cup of tea, but, I mean, it serves a purpose. Um, Cable? Serves a purpose. Hellions, as we discussed today, serves a purpose. Wolverine doesn't. Wolverine gets his own ongoing because Wolverine's always had his own ongoing, it feels like. Um, I want to say, like, my main takeaway from Wolverine number one, that double-sized monster that we read not too long ago, my main takeaway was this doesn't feel like it warrants a number one of a brand new volume. I mean, it's a Wolverine story, sure. We got two of them, actually, in that issue, but... What about those two stories makes it so we need to actually have an ongoing series here? Didn't feel warranted. Feels very much like bloat. But thank you so much for uh, checking in, Evan. I'm looking forward to seeing your, or reading your thoughts when you get to uh, the second story arc of Wolverine here, the vampire one. 
I want to hear what you think about that one. That one surprised me a little bit. Surprisingly uh, decent. <laughs> well, what was it? I didn't hate it. I was just mildly bored by it, <laughs> is what I had to say about it. But that's where we'll drop the mailbag for today. If anybody else would like to write in, please feel free to do so. You could find me at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapse.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us on Facebook. Our little group is called 90s X-Men. And you can listen to all of the good stuff at the Chris and Reggie Radio Network or whatever the hell network channel. What do I I call that thing? The Chris and Reggie channel. We'll call it that. Over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But that is where we will leave it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And uh, till next time, as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya.